five, four, three, two, one. This is Cameron Crowe, and uh, this is the audio commentary track for Untitled, the movie that became almost famous. I will make no apologies up front for this being a personal reminiscence. Should be fun. With me here, Scott Martin from Vinyl Films. Hello. Andy Fisher from Vinyl Films. Hello. Ivan Corona, our family friend. Hey, how you doing? We have uh, Mark Atkinson from DreamWorks over there, and our special guest star, Alice Crow, my mom. <laughs> there she is, live and in person. Um, so I figured there was two ways to do this. One would be the mystique-filled, shrouded, no actual facts being revealed version. Or we could just be blatantly open about what uh, created the movie and how we did it and where it all came from. By the way, I'm very proud of this title, Untitled. Um, but anyway, so, of course, we're going to go for the embarrassingly personal approach because that was always my favorite thing about the music I loved and movies that I loved. And uh, thank you, Francis, for getting the joke of the misspelling of your name. But this is, uh, this is a very kind of uh, important movie to me. It was hard for us to make, but we basically went home every night in disbelief over our good fortune to be able to do it so here we are reliving it these are all my old backstage passes and stuff that who pass actually has my name on it but you know freeze frame that's what it's for um this title sequence is an homage to to kill a mockingbird uh, which we mentioned in the movie and uh i always love the title sequence to to kill a mockingbird the music's by nancy wilson my wife who's so brilliant and all these things are real artifacts because my family, and this begins with my mom, we've, we've always been pack rats. We save everything. Am I right? Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay, Fam so, family curse. So we finally found a purpose for all this stuff. Those are some of my old notes from journalism. I think it was a story on Jethro Tull. Like I say, shamelessly personal. That's what our little uh, trip through the audio commentary is going to be. Um, th these are shots of San Diego where uh, my family moved uh, when I was pretty young. That's Balboa Park. and uh, that's, that's where Granny and Grandpa spent their honeymoon. Really? Balboa, Balboa Park? Park, right there. Wow. I think we're in Pacific Beach now. Here's Ocean Beach. By the way, Clay Griffith, who was unable to get the credit as production designer because of his uh, relative newcomer status, did an amazing job, and he shares that credit with Clayton Hartley, who is the art director. But let's just say Clay did a tour de force job on every little detail in the movie. So we hail you, Clay. Here is uh, OB, Ocean Beach, where I did a lot of body surfing, and we all hung out. And here we are, uh, here we are in Pacific Beach, Mom. One of my favorite scenes that you cut half of it. My favorite scene. <laughs> this one? Uh, yes, they were in the, when the man's writing on the, uh, on the, uh, on, on the, the window. Yeah, on the window there. You know that's coming up. I put that oh, back it? in. Oh, well, wonderful! Thank you. Good. This is uh, a tribute to my mom. Who? Oh, by the way, yes, 
Stolen Kisses, Don't Look Back, and also Best Years of Our Lives Were Real. That's the Strand Theater. That's the Strand Theater. The old Strand Theater. We used to go there and throw uh, balls up on the stage, Kleenex balls up on the screen. We, we did? did? Yes, we did. <laughs> was that where we saw Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia and you stood up and said, Bring Me the Head of Sam Peckinpah? <laughs> I think so. Could be. Could anyway, be. this scene is a tribute to my mom because my mom could never handle Xmas. That's right. Yeah, she thought it was, uh, it was just wrong. It's Happy Holidays or Merry Christmas. That's What's right. X, right? Yes, that's right. Okay, Doesn't we have confirmation. This is... Uh, Boy, I love Zoe Deschanel. She did such a great job playing Anita. And uh, my daughter Cindy. Yeah. She looks just like her. I know. And that's your that's pretty much one of your dresses, isn't it? That Francis is wearing? That's right. You used to wear those yeah. kind of uh, peasant moo moo <laughs> things. <laughs> Very sixties. It's uh, great. This scene actually happened. It's true. Happened. She looked in the mirror to see if her lips were puffy, and they were. <laughs> but we never could figure out if you actually knew I did. how to tell I did. that they'd been kissing. Yeah, her lips were puffy. Yeah. She was mystified on how you actually knew. <laughs> now, do you remember this? You you really did feel Simon and Garfunkel were on pot. I, I admit to nothing. <laughs> you know, Paul Simon did an interview on CNN, and they played this scene. Really? And he said uh, that you may have been right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. But the the uh, I finally admit it. The wicked, wicked thing is that you saw Simon and Garfunkel play uh, Mrs. Robinson yes. on the Smothers Brothers show. Yes. And you wrote a letter to NBC and you said, "Jesus loves you more than you will know." They are saying that in a sarcastic way. That's true. I got a letter of apology from the president. Wow. Well, it took us a few years, but hopefully. But I embrace them. We're able to pay tribute. Really? Oh yes. Yeah, they're great. In a no environment. Oh, it sounds familiar. <laughs> now, Mom, was it weird seeing this uh, movie for the first time? Oh, yes. Imagine uh, when you're your children, you've got little twin boys, Billy and Curtis. Imagine that what you're telling them now is going to be shown on the screen if they become screenwriters, and you're going to sit in a big theater and you're going to hear your words coming back at you. Oh, it's scary. Really? I better get ready. But this, I always love this because you and I were always... We always could bond over intellectual intricacies, you know, and that's what the end of that scene is for me. But then, of course, rock and roll must go. But you were my ally, and I needed one. <laughs> but the movie did bring you and Cindy together, brought yes, our family together. That's right. So let's just say that. I just talked to her yesterday. I think uh, I always felt... Oh, I love this scene. You know, oh, I love You this skipped scene. me grades, man. This oh. happened. I actually thought I'd be appealing to girls. It never quite worked. These were key years to have skipped. But this happened. Oh, I'm so glad you kept this in. William doesn't have any Thanks. How old are you, man? I'm a little sorry that it actually happened in real life, but. Uh... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh. There was a guy named, uh, well, I can't say his first name because who knows, but his last name was Tobin. And he. He just ridiculed me for being younger. And, I shaved him off. I love it. Uh, and for me being slower in the pubes department <laughs> than, than he was. He was an adenoidal freak, this guy. <laughs> but uh, I always remember his face just screwed up in some insane expression going, 
don't you know? Don't you know you're so young? Don't you know? And it was like, wow. Why the anger, man? <laughs> but anyway, I always remembered um, this car, which is our country sedan. Yes, white. A white country sedan. Yes. Which John told the esteemed cinematographer who, there it is. who we hailed. He doesn't like to shoot white. So... Under great duress, John shot this white car. Thank you, John. Beautifully. Thank you, John. And I want to be, say a lot of things about John Toll. But this scene actually happened. And, uh, Ouch. You know, I, I know you had the best intentions. Busted. Cindy just wanted to bring it all out. And uh, my memory of it is the shot that you're going to see from the back seat, which uh, was a combination of... I don't know. I kind of had a Coen Brothers look at the world from that back seat. <laughs> and I remember this. I remember those seats, too. It was so great to get all the details right. Although, uh, sometimes I think the crew behind my back were saying, there it is, that's, that's what I remember. Sometimes I think the crew, when I'd go to like 18 takes of somebody saying some inconsequential thing, they'd kind of look at each other and say, you know, therapy might have been a little cheaper. <laughs> but. There it is. Yeah. Joe Hutching, our wonderful editor, Sark Klein, Mark Lavolsi, we worked really, yeah, we worked really hard on this scene. You know, when does the kid scream and how loud and all that stuff. And we went for loud. Here it goes. This explains so much. This is, uh, this is one of those days we were parked. We just parked by the side of the road, I think, in uh, the valley doing this scene. But, but Cameron, it wasn't my fault uh, that you were skipped. Uh, you skipped the fifth grade. You went to the classroom, and someone had switched the signs, the fifth and sixth grade. And ten days later, you said, Mom, I'm in the sixth grade. And I said, No, you're not. You're in the fifth grade. He said, I'm in the sixth grade. I said, oh, my God, they must have made a mistake. Do you like it? Are you doing okay? And you have some, made some friends now. And he says, I like it. And I said, do you want to stay or not? He said, I want to stay. And that's what happened. That, yeah. was, that was the third uh, bump. Yeah, that was the third grade I <laughs> yeah. skipped. But do you remember saying to me, Fifth go grade. to Europe. Take a look around. Ex that's verbatim. Follow it's your dream. Exactly what I said. <laughs> how, did you, how did you remember? Oh, oh, you know, it's only indelibly marked in my <laughs> psyche. <laughs> So, but you did go to Europe, and you did take a look around. around yeah, I did, so, with Led Zeppelin and there other go. bands, and that's what the movie's that's about. That's right, and Irving Azoff. Irving Azoff was Because Daddy and I had to go to L.A. at that time to get yeah, your passport. That's true. That's true. I went with the Eagles. Yeah. That was my shirt. That's my actual shirt. It was a competition-striped shirt. Where's the $20 we used to keep by the door for your gas money in case you ran out of gas? I put that scene back in, and we're going to see it a little later. Okay. All right. Gee, I still don't get bossed around by my mom, do I? <laughs> so now this is based on a photo that we actually had when my sister was leaving the house one day. She had this, she had curlers on, and the the picture was so amazing because it said, "I got to get out of here," and I, you know, I'll take the curlers off in the car. <laughs> and so that dress is beautifully captured by Betsy Hyman and the top and the hair and those curlers were orange juice cans frozen 
orange juice cans that they had. They don't show them in the movie, but in real life she had frozen. That's what they used in the 60s. She said 70s. to me, one day you'll be cool. And she also said, guys mature better later, I remember Cindy said. But I love this scene. This is also a tribute. This guy, Daryl, uh, is a tribute to uh, a, a man named John Seipold, who was one of my sister's early boyfriends. He looked like Stephen Stills. He was one of the best-looking guys yes. I'd ever met. I remember him, and he, he was a swim team captain. And he was Cindy's first real hardcore boyfriend. And he since uh, he died a couple of years ago. He died before the movie could come out, which uh, is a real shame because we, we really loved John Seipold. This is... Uh, and that is the... That was the bag. That's the that's bag. That's the exact bag. I saved it. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, Cameron. Yeah. You and got it right. These were a lot of the same records. Yes. Uh, I put a few back. See, it's not so bad to be a pack rat. Hell no. Yeah, when you moved out, when you moved to L.A., I saved all your stuff. I Everything know. was in the room waiting for Almost Famous. Yep, it's true. Untitled. That was the first Untitled. bootleg I ever got. That's the actual copy. I'm happy that y'all came down. Great bootleg to any Neil fan. CSN, Jimmy. We put a few extra albums in this. Someone said, it looks like he's fondling Joni Mitchell in a sexual way. I said, come on, he's just loving blue. Well, you know what Freud said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Exactly. That's my mom. That's Elaine Miller. So Cindy actually did do this, left me her records, and um, it was uh, the only the only one that's actually not time accurate, and it's one of the few little... Obvious, purposeful mistakes was Blue. Blue came out a couple years later, but I love, I love the album Joni Mitchell's Blue because it's personal and it's shamelessly personal, and I, it probably aches for her. And I think she says she doesn't really listen to it that much. And I thought that's a standard to hit for the movie. You know, this movie's got to ache, and if you pull punches in a coy or precious way. Why do it? You know, exactly. so it was. It was kind of hard day to day to just be a cop on yourself. And it's funny how the movie turned out to still be kind of, uh, you know, worshipful in the right way. Because I think to be a fan is a is an important thing, and it's good to protect that. And the movie, more than anything else to me, feels like a fan's love letter. This was uh, this is a scene cut from the movie. William Miller is too young to drive or... <laughs> I still can't say that word in front of my mom. <laughs> I wouldn't. Should I? I shouldn't say it, no, right? No. Okay, good. You don't say it. So William Miller is too young to drive or fuck. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, a version of that actually happened. And uh, there's Lauren Nero. These are... These are scenes I'm very proud of with Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, who plays Lester Banks. And Lester was an important guy in my life, and I met him in just this way, corresponded with him, told me uh, he was coming back to his hometown, San Diego, which I had the same hometown. And I met him at this radio station, KPRI, and we went back and filmed in the exact same location, which was an insurance company, and we refitted it to be KPRI with help from Gabriel Wisdom, who's, who's one of the big-time DJs in San Diego. Who was a woman in this film. Now she uh, 
she becomes a woman, Alice Wisdom. A little tribute to my mom in there. This was uh, the Guess Who shirt. I had, a, I had the Guess Who shirt that Lester was wearing that day because they had been sent out to the press. So that was what Lester looked like. This is what he talked about, this live version of American Woman. It is the most brilliant piece of gobbledygook ever. I challenge anyone to go out there and find live at the Paramount the Guess Who. It's ridiculously great. Anyway, um, elsewhere on the DVD, there'll be a little special surprise. It'll be the first take that I did with Philip Seymour Hoffman as Lester Banks. It's an interesting thing that happened. But he was channeling Lester, for sure. Well, Lester was there whispering over your shoulder throughout the whole film. It's true. This was the first thing we shot with Phil Hoffman, who really took time out from a very busy schedule to completely do the homework, study Lester, study tapes of his voice. In between every take, he'd put on a headset and be listening to an interview with Lester. Cameron, you're such a perfectionist. This is the exact street where this took place. That's right. You would have no other. You went down there and, and checked it all out for days till you found the exact street. Yeah. And this is it. Yeah. And you like Lou Reed? The early stuff. And his new stuff. And this was, this was the conversation I had with Lester. The one thing that he said that's not in the movie or a part of it it will be in there in this extended version. But one of the things he said is, and I realized that he was like a rock softy, like a <laughs> tough softy. He said, yeah, I'm going to go and drive by the house of my old girlfriend that broke my heart. So I'm a little busy today. And I just thought, wow, tough as nails, but he's going to be weeping outside his girlfriend's house in about an hour and a half. <laughs> and... Uh, this was something the editors and I tried to get right the whole time, which was how to transition into the next scene. And finally, getting this together for uh, the untitled DVD, we nailed the edit. So here it is coming up. And this is what it felt like saying goodbye to Lester that day. Goodbye. Yeah. Bye. Oh, I love that scene. That should have been in the, uh, the video. <laughs> you need a ride? No, man, I took the bus. No, because once you go to L.A. Oh, I think nice. there's not enough movies that take time. the time yes. to really do that. That's right. And uh, it's one of the great things about being able to put the longer version out. Because it's film. We have it, it exists. And in the spirit of bootlegs, if you like the album, you're going to be interested in the alternate takes and the extended versions. And my only apology is that you don't have to go to a swap meet or illegally purchase it. Because <laughs> that adds to the whole clandestine idea of a bootleg. But this is the bootleg, almost famous, the, the theatrical version really is the version that's kind of built for the world. But this is, this is the one where you can sit at home, put it on pause, go get a beer, make some phone calls, come back and stay on the road with Stillwater, go to another city. And uh, it's what we went for. This, this version that you're watching is very close to the original script. 
the original and, version that I, I saw was like about four hours long. Did you have to just cut it down for pacing? Did they uh, pretty much just make you do it for pacing reasons? or? No, we started showing the movie. The, we showed the, an original version. That's Ivan, by the way. Hello, Ivan. Hey. Um, we showed the original version in San Jose, which was this, pretty much this version. And it felt like we were telling the story, but it definitely tried the patience a little bit of the of most of the viewers because the movie was intended to give you a feeling and if you stay too long that feeling is going to be flecked with restlessness and for theatrical experience the two hour plus version that we have really does say what i want to say and it doesn't uh it doesn't challenge you to pick through a lot of details to get there. It's your catharsis. This this is uh, this is the best of everything we shot. This longer version, and it just says, "Okay, dig in, let it roll." <laughs> oh, memories. And it's like you know, but I. I'm I'm dangerous in the editing. By the way, I love this guy who says I want to get high. It's oh. my favorite extra. Yes. Here he comes. Oh, do I love that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't get enough of that guy. Um But I'm I'm such a fan of details. Like I love studio chatter on records. Like I like to hear the producer saying, Take three. That guitar is out of tune. You know, so I'm dangerous in the editing room. I'll put all that stuff in. And we've we put a lot of stuff into this. Here's our family doctor's children in the background, the rays, right? My, I whistled louder. I whistled my, that's the way really loud. Mom, do the family whistle one more time. Nice and loud. Remember, Cameron? Oh, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> here's, the, uh, here's the backstage of the San Diego Sports Arena. And this is the kind of scene where they go, you can find a better backstage in Los Angeles, come on. But no, it had to be the San Diego yeah. Sports Arena. There was a real guy named uh, Scotty who worked the backstage who was just, I mean, he just targeted me for emotional terrorism. He just really <laughs> didn't believe in me. He was a short guy with a gimp leg and slicked hair and a face that looked like a, an old Chrysler. And this guy just didn't want me backstage. But the first time I got backstage, there was a guy named Larry Vallon who worked at Concert Associates. And uh, Black Sabbath, it was a Black Sabbath show. And I was on the list, but this guy, Freddie, Scotty, um, wouldn't let me in. So finally, Larry Vallon uh, had some sympathy. Big, tall, Abraham Lincoln-type guy who worked for the promoter. Came out, saw me, went and got the road manager of Black Sabbath and got me backstage. So Larry, thanks. And that... This, the evening felt a lot like this. Here, uh, here's the introduction of Penny Lane. Kate Hudson, <laughs> hello, hello. You're not a what? Not a groupie. Oh, <laughs> I love that coat. I know, it's oh. great. It's and, a, and it's July, it's summer. That's right, the coat is in summer. Yeah. The, the coat which Betsy Hyman put together. Oh, she's for us. wonderful. Yeah. She's the best in the world. She's great. Oh, and Betsy. We love Betsy. The coat really is a combination of an homage to the girls of the time who would hang out at the Continental Hyatt House and also 
I'll tell you a secret. It is mostly a tribute to Fran Kubelik's coat in The Apartment, which is my favorite movie, along with To Kill a Mockingbird. So it's kind of a strange, reminiscent tribute to Billy Wilder, Shirley MacLaine medley of a coat, and it's perfect. It's all happening. Okay, now that was the phrase. Am I going on too much? Well, I guess this is what the purpose of it is, right? Okay, so it's all happening was a phrase that came from a woman named uh, Michelle Meyer. And Michelle was a real kind of behind-the-scenes queen of Hollywood and the rock scene. And she used to say it's all happening, and so did Rodney Bingenheimer, who's still the king of L.A. rock pop radio. And they would say, it's all happening. And that spread, and everybody, everybody was saying it's all happening. So I love being able to use that. Oh, I love this. Song. Does anybody remember laughter? Oh, of course. Does anyone remember that? I told Feruza how much I love this scene. If I had to save one scene in the entire film, it would be that one. Does anybody remember laughter? Yeah. Which really expresses the whole uh, mood of the film. Yeah. And it came from Robert Plant, the live version of Stairway to Heaven. Really? Yeah, when we showed the movie to Led Zeppelin. You can bet I was a little nervous when we uh, showed him that and a couple other scenes. Actually, Feruza sent you that tape? Yeah. Of saying that line about 300 times. That's right. Feruza, for her audition, had to say, does anybody remember laughter? And she sent a tape from New York where she went to, like, all kinds of clubs and went everywhere. We should have that on the DVD. She's just saying, does anybody remember laughter? All over town. Oh, she was wonderful. She got the job, yes, baby. Yes. She's amazing. I love the way the camera showed the platforms first. Yeah. Well, John Toll and I had a conversation very early on, and the idea was it should the camera should be a little bit like a Truffaut camera, a camera in day for night, where the camera just kind of gently crooks a finger your way and says, come and take a look at this. The camera is your friend in Almost Famous. It's also a little bit of a tribute to Mad Dogs and Englishmen and 400 Blows and stuff, but we'll talk more about that later. Here's Stillwater. And uh, I stood in that spot many a time with many bands trying to, trying to set up an interview. And but I remember usually, Cameron, I was waiting out in the lot. You were. <laughs> and it pretty car. much went like this. Pretty much early on, you could see the dynamic between the lead singer and the guitarist. Neither of them wanted to see the other get asked for the interview first. <laughs> so you had to kind of do it as a group. Way to go. Guys, should we just hail Billy Crudup and Jason Lee and oh, John yes. Fedovich and Mark Koslick for a moment? They became a band. It's amazing. Just amazing. I said to Nancy, my wife, who's the great collaborator, the kitchen collaborator on all our stuff, I said to her, you know, once we make... The band was originally English in an early draft. And I, I said, like, once we make this band American, we are either doomed or we'll slip by. Because there's no stereotypes or funny accents to lie back on. You just have to be as real as you can. And uh, thanks to them, I think we got pretty close. This is a... This is a who's the name of this actor? Zach Ward. Zach Ward. Fantastic. He inhabited uh, Red Dog, who's the great, the most legendary roadie anywhere of all time, really. He's the Allman Brothers Band's roadie. He's written a book now called uh, 
What is it? Something Tales. Uh, uh, Tales. Anyway, you can get on his website, thelegendaryreddog.com. It's a great, great book. And he is the King Roadie. I think he's probably going to end up in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Took care of me on an early story with the Allman Brothers that much of this movie is based on my first road trip. So thank you, Red Dog. And uh, A Book of Tales. That's the name of it. T-A-I-L-S. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> a little uh, Jason Lee just on fire here. Jason Lee is a guy who is ready anytime, any place with the longest speech. You can't write a speech too long for him. He'll be ready to do it at the drop of a hat, and he just rips it. He's amazing. He is amazing. Yes. When I visited on the set, I noticed... <laughs> and the chicks are great. When I visited on the set, I noticed the Stillwater actors all ate together, talked together, stayed yeah. together, walked that sloping yeah. uh, band uh, walk together. I couldn't believe they were actors, and some of them were not professional musicians. By the were way, they? that's early moose. That's 70s moose shaving cream. <laughs> and that actually, uh, I used to see that a lot. And that was my tape recorder, too, on the orange bag. I don't know. I just figure, you know, might as well go with what you had and what you kept. So, Which is everything. <laughs> the, yeah. And that's, that's, and that's the actual pass from this first show I got backstage at. So in some way, we, didn't we have to make this movie to clear out the, uh, the bookshelves, Mom? Well, I'm afraid we didn't clear them out, dear. They're still there. <laughs> My condo is still San Diego pick and save. <laughs> Kate? Got Waiting moves. for the sequel. <laughs> now, mysterious. How old are you? 18. Patrick Fugit we should talk about Patrick you know is me too the embodiment of innocent fandom on the verge of adulthood all that stuff I mean I didn't that was you Cameron pretty much better looking than I was but he 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 captures how it felt when I look at him I remember how it actually felt and he came from uh, Salt Lake City and hadn't done too much. I think one episode of Touched by an Angel and was in like a, a B-movie, horror movie, something, something about the ants. He was eaten by ants. He was eaten by ants. <laughs> and uh, we got his tape thanks to uh, Gail Levin, who we should also hail. Gail oh, is the she's wonderful. Gail's wonderful. greatest yeah. casting director she is. She in the world. She works 24-hour days. 20, 30-hour days and also brought in so many great actors I wish uh, I wish they were all in the movie many of them actually are in this long version but Gail found Patrick Fugit and we hired him and we almost didn't get the movie made by the way I'm playing this actual song on the set when Kate's doing the scene and it made her cry so made a lot of people cry made a lot of people cry and Joni gave us a song it was great anyway this is a scene that I was always sorry wasn't in the movie this is where Billy talks about Marvin Gaye. There's a single woo at the end of the second verse. Do you know that woo, that single woo? I know that woo. Woo! Yeah, yeah that's what you remember, man. Yeah. It's the little things, the silly things. I love Marvin Gaye, and I also really love the idea that, you know, for all the people that say, 
oh, rock, it's sex and drugs, it's sex and drugs. And every movie and every TV show, it's always about sex and drugs. What always pissed me off about movies that accented that too much is that they never captured how much the bands, the musicians, love music. By the way, this is a tribute to Joel Bernstein's Time Fades Away cover, the Neil Young album. And much of this movie is based on Joel's photos and Neil Preston's photos. Um, but so many people want to uh, lean too hard on sex and drugs. And it's fun and it's entertaining and it's cool and I love those movies. But I just wanted to get in how much these bands love music. And uh, I went back and was listening to What's Happening Brother last night and realized, of course, that the single woo actually happens three times in What's Happening Brother. I think I was thinking <laughs> of Distant Lover where the ow happens once. But you get the idea. It's not like the cashmere thing in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But Cameron, that's why you were so amazing at 16, because what other journalists would remember all the woos? Well, close to the amount of woos. But um, here's Fever Dog. This is, we did this at the San Diego Sports Arena. and I remember standing on the stage with the guys going, you guys, Elvis, Zeppelin, the Stones, They've all stood here and they've all played and now it's your stage. And they'd be like, Jason Lee would be like, hell yeah, it's our stage. And I'd be saying, I'm a lucky guy. This <laughs> might just work. <laughs> Noah Taylor. Noah Taylor is a, I, I just got to say, he's, he is one of the greatest secret yes, weapons. He is. he is. one of the most talented actors in, in the world. I'm in love with Noah Taylor. Noah, I'm in love with you. We're all in love with Noah. Oh, he's so sweet. Noah's so in brilliant. Vanilla Sky. He is just, he's everything you want as yes, a director. Yes, and such he a kind man. He brings so his own soul to the movie and acts from his soul and very selflessly. Yes. Um, to assume the role of that road manager. And he managed and he Stillwater. In he stayed in character. During lunch, you know, everybody else didn't stay in character because it was lunchtime but yeah. Noah stayed in character that's right and he he loved the guys and they're all still friends but Noah it's it's the little things you know without Noah I don't know if the movie is the same I just don't know you know and to get the music and the band right was everything in Almost Famous and so we love you Noah well Noah's in your new film Vanilla Sky yeah important role yep Different, completely different character. Yes. I hardly recognized him. Yep. He's great. There he is. So many a time, many a time was spent at this exact spot at the San Diego Sports Arena. And uh, Neil Preston and I, Neil was the photographer and the still photographer on Almost Famous. And we used to do all our stories together. And uh, spent a lot of time right here making uh, plans for the future exchanging phone numbers meeting people saying goodbye all happened right there my dream was that other bands would come to the sports arena after this and go hey this is where they filmed that movie come on let's blow this and there's mark Koslick of the red house painters and uh patrick who we can talk a little bit more about patrick just had a strange adrenaline surge this night he 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 was uh 
I think he sort of became Jim Carrey for this scene. <laughs> he is animated. How many he is times out of his mind. It's great. Not this uh, scene, like oh. twice. Because Patrick is just, look at him. He's like, oh. And it's great because his natural way is to be kind of he just, inward. He just matured five years in that scene. That's right. Now, this is, this is one of my very favorite sequences that I've ever directed. And... Uh, not that I've had a vast amount of uh, movies as a director, but this was number four, and this is one of those times where you just are thrilled to be there. Everything disappears, and you just go, yeah! And watching uh, Patrick and Kate here, I think I was just jumping up and down like crazy because I loved it so much. And then we went outside on a very cold night, and we filmed this. And in the editing room, I just have to say, Joe Hutching and I were looking at footage and Nancy had just written this theme that you hear. And we put this theme on the scene and looked at each other and said, well, this, this is the movie. This is the feeling of the movie. Patrick is, I think, a little bit in love with Kate at this time in real life. And I put a moment in that's actually Patrick talking to Kate. It's one of my favorite things in the movie. Yes. And it's right here when yeah. he says, ask yeah. me again. You sure? Ask me again. Oh, yes. Do you want to come? Yes, yes. Yeah. That ask me again is the real guy. And, you know, you just, you Look die for those real moments. Yes. Look at him. I think he... Look at his eyes. Just passed through puberty in that one shot. <laughs> <laughs> no, his eyes say, you're so gorgeous, Kate. You're I know. gorgeous. I want you. Yeah. I don't think you should suggest to him to watch this uh, director's commentary. I don't think he'd <laughs> Very sexy, sexy man, Patrick Fugit. And then uh, and we then... have a white front sign in the background, which Joe Hutching, who also grew up in San Diego, and I decided had to be there. A what? A white front. White front was a department store. Ah, so we put it there. So, Mom, you're about to see the full-length Daryl scene. All right. A.K.A. John Seipel. This was the first thing we shot in the movie. The first day, first shot. Hey, Daryl. And this happened. Love this guy, Jesse Caron. Amazing. you got to love that shirt. <laughs> so, your sister's a stewardess now. Yeah, yeah. She and Mom are still sort of... Well, I'd say, I'd say not speaking, but I don't know that they ever did. One of the reasons that... Uh, <laughs> one of the reasons that we cut the movie down for theatrical release is that you just wanted the kid to get out on the road. And I think there was a feeling in the, in the theaters of like, come on, let's get him on the road. So stuff like this we trimmed back. But it's back. And... When Jesse Carone as Daryl sits on the bed and reminisces about his time with with uh, William Miller's sister, I just you know, I could walk away at that point and figure I'm a happy guy. <laughs> it's like church. It's the church of the girl that dumped him. <laughs> and where was I when this was going on? In the other room, completely mm. unaware. I love how he just kind of makes that fist and pounds the bed. God knows what that represents. So here's the money, Mom. 
Yeah. Oh, there it is. Yes. We still do that. Yeah. And here's that money I owe you. That's what we used to say, but it was $20 for gas money in case you ran out of gas. Yeah. No, I thought that was pretty good. I've raised it to 50 now, son. <laughs> oh, I don't go barefoot. Oh, Francis, please. This was my mom's one uh, comment about the movie is that she never went barefoot in the house. I think we got to give that one to the amazing Francis McDormand. <laughs> what do you say, Mom? Oh, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> I love the performance that she that she did that she portrayed me except for that. Well, I just want to say, can you imagine what it was like for Frances McDormand to sign on to play a very close facsimile of the director's mother with the mother <laughs> on the set filming in San Diego? Can we, we just add that? Well, we 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 bought it she, at the Academy Awards. She and I can go her. barefoot all day long. <laughs> <laughs> we laughed about it at the Frances Academy Awards. Francis is. <laughs> A genius. Yes, she is. And uh, anyway, this is this is uh, my old girlfriend Sue Sawyer's uh, car, a reasonable facsimile. And uh, this was actually the final days of the Continental Hyatt House, which has now been gutted and remodeled, and this whole lobby is gone. It was torn down about 30 seconds after we finished filming. And it was where everybody hung out. It was like a club. There's Bodie Elfman. Hello. This was like a combination of a hotel, a club, and uh, a radio station, and a bar, and uh, a meeting place for everybody involved in rock in L.A. If you wanted to interview, there's Peter Frampton. Peter Frampton. Hello. If you wanted to interview somebody, meet somebody, if you hung out in the lobby of the Hyatt House, you would meet them or find them before too long. Michelle Meyer, Rodney Bingenheimer, they would always be there saying it's all happening. And uh, You remember Danny Sugarman, who wrote the book on the doors, who was also a journalist? I remember Danny. Danny used to hang out at the Hyatt House, too. And uh, so we were very adamant about wanting to film at the Hyatt House. It's where Led Zeppelin stayed. It's where all the bands stayed. And um, with the exception, hey, there's Anna Paquin. She's going to be talking about Sable Star, one of the great groupies of the era, in a second. But anyway, I'm very proud that we got to film at the Hyatt House. Kate Hudson's character is, is a combination of a few girls that I remember back then. The main one in spirit is uh, uh, the real Penny Lane. And her name is Penny Trumbull, and she is a very noble and uh, true spirit. Never has exploited her relationships or her experiences in any way, and uh, still lives up in Oregon. And we tribute her in this movie. I don't understand that. Have you ever seen The Bridge? That's a line from a Led Zeppelin song. Oh. Have you, have you seen The Bridge? So, Leonard Barr was a comedian that used to look like a cadaver. <laughs> and, uh, by the way, this is a tribute to Graham Parsons and Amy oh, Lou Harris. this is such a sweet little... Who I met in 1973. Scene. And that's Pete DeRoge and Elaine Summers singing this great song that you're going to hear more of on this DVD. But anyway, Leonard Barr... Here comedian. he is. Leonard. Blow me. 
<laughs> okay. Very happy that's back in. Um, I, when I first came to the Hyatt house, uh, I, I saw this guy, Leonard Barr, who was, who was about 50 years older than anyone else hanging out in the Hyatt house. And he just sat around, standing around, whatever, scowling at everybody. And I recognized him from Johnny Carson's show. And this was like one of the first celebrities you know, I mean, he'd been in my home. I had an intense personal relationship with Leonard Barr. And I went up to him and I said, hey, you're Leonard Barr, the comedian. And he said to me, blow me. <laughs> <laughs> so Leonard is no longer with us, but hopefully he, he lives on in the extended version. <laughs> the movie I always thought should be a feeling. As much as anything else, it should give you a feeling. And scenes like this were very important, just to show the camaraderie of the bands and the way that people were together, while all this other stuff was swirling around and sexual liaisons were happening and dope was being smoked. And all this stuff is part of a big circus. But really, it's about the club of being together. And when you get invited into that club, you never forget it. And I never forget that feeling of belonging that happened when I did escape from San Diego and come to LA and hang with the bands. And that was a big feeling that I wanted to capture in the movie. And this, this scene, I think, does that. Hey, man. How worried for me were you back then, Mom? I was worried, son, believe me. I was. I would arrange with your teachers for makeup tests of the makeups of the makeups of the makeups of the final, and then I'd get that call, Mom, sorry, I'm not going to be back next Wednesday for that test. So I had to make adjustments. You were so worried, though, that, that I was going to get on dope. Oh, and of course, because uh, drugs were just very common, and they were accepted. You know, poor people really realized some of the long-term uh, subtle effects of them. It was just uh, accepted, and I... And I I knew from a lot of the literature I'd read about the long-term effects, so I was concerned. So that's why the, the family line was, don't take drugs. Don't take drugs. But I didn't. Um, you know, as a little guy hanging around with bands, I would see drugs, and they would offer me drugs. I mean, the first time, first time I interviewed uh, Humble Pie that first night, Steve Marriott offered me a big hash joint and a Heineken, and... Uh, and I said no, and that was the first time I heard this, which was echoed for years afterwards. Uh, he said, "Do you want this? Uh, do you do you want this joint? You know?" And I said no, and he goes, "Good, more for me." <laughs> so I used to hear that all the time. They'd offer me coke and things like that, and I would say no, and they would say, "Good, more for me." Like they were all thinking of it for the first time, and. Uh, I think now journalism is such that people would write about things like that, but I, I always thought my job was to capture, again, what it was like to have a front row seat, to be on the road with the Allman Brothers, or to be on the road with the Who. And uh, that, my duty was not to uh, skewer and hang some of my favorite bands, but to capture what it was like to be in that inner circle making the music. And generally, it wasn't about drugs. And Cameron, you did, because that was a critical year. Right after that, it changed. Everything changed. 
Yeah. The whole scene changed, the music changed, the temper of the times changed, and you've captured it well, the, in the, this film. The movie is set in 73 for a reason, because 73, I remember somebody said to me at the time, this is the last business in the world where, the, where a hippie can become a millionaire. And uh, before too long, those hippies, those hippie managers that That's were right. there early got usurped, yeah. usurped yeah. before That's right. the band even left their That's hometown. Right. The conglomerates took over. And, you know, great music has happened since. Great music happens every minute of every day. You can find it if you look for it. But there was kind of a glorious naivete. Yes, flecked with, you know, all kinds of other stuff. And toughness in the relationships between men and women certainly was there. But there was a glorious naivete that I think the movie did justice to. That's an amazing scene there, Cameron. I know. That was the ice room scene. I'm glad we put that back in. Yes, I am too. Billy uh, was great in there. I oh, love him I when love he says, uh, you retired like Frank Sinatra is retired. Oh, I love this. The fact checker used to just get so upset at the fat fact checker at Rolling Stone. I wonder if she saw the film and recognized herself. <laughs> there were a few of them. <laughs> what can we say about Terry Chen as Ben Fong Torres? Oh, wonderful. I, oh, I don't know where oh. one guy begins and the other ends really? anymore. <laughs> really? Terry this Chen spent a lot of time with Ben Fong Torres and... Uh, they, they, you know, he's speaking exactly like Ben, wearing shirts exactly like Ben. Ben came to the set one day and said, "This all looks good to me, but uh, I never wore shirts like that." It's like, <laughs> what? It was a real, it was a real lesson in in the rose-colored glasses that we all put on, because Ben only wore shirts like that. <laughs> Jackson Brown in the background, and also, do you remember? Uh, turning me on to Mike Nichols and Elaine May, Mom. That's why I that record did. is there. I still have the record. I still play it, and it still works. It's wonderful. One of the great oh, wonderful. one of the great gifts that the movie brought to us is Mike Nichols called after he saw the oh, movie and just loved it and really? said that his wife, Diane Sawyer, turned to him and said, gee, you're a, you're a featured performer in that one scene. And I was, I was proud of that because we put that record we loved up. It. I tried to get that record in almost every scene. Finally, we got it in that one. Um, oh, that T-shirt's so great! I know it's it's a facsimile of Lester's own shirt. Oh. Again, thanks to Jim DeRogatis for getting us some of the research materials, and Jan Uhelski, mm -hmm. who lived with Lester at the Cream House in Birmingham, Michigan, with Dave Marsh and all the others. This was a conversation I had with Lester. It's too bad you never met Lester, Mom. Oh, I feel as though I did. Yeah. Jan, we really helped us with the details on this. That's the kind of chicken that Lester used to get. And uh, it's there. And uh, I think he called the house. He did. I think I, I, I took some phone calls from him. I think I did. So this is a scene. Oh, that's my dress. That is my dress. Yes, it's identical. Oh, Betsy. <laughs> Betsy, Betsy's so great. You gave her pictures of me during that uh, during that year, and she had them handmade. Exactly. It, it's so strange to see my 
my clothes. Well, let's talk about the Stairway to Heaven scene that was cut out, where you were a featured performer, Mom. <laughs> it will appear on this DVD <laughs> elsewhere, your entire scene. It's where uh, <laughs> William Miller plays Stairway to Heaven for his mom to convince uh -huh. her that rock and roll is intelligent and literate. <laughs> Remember those moments? Remember it. You shot it all day. <laughs> Like six hours worth. Okay, okay, easy, easy. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I do a lot of takes sometimes. Sometimes. Anyway, Herb Alt, who works with John Toll and John Toll and Randy Woodside, these are a great bunch of guys and a gift to any director because we wanted to get the bus scenes feeling different. Most people sort of they have a jittery camera and. Uh, they kind of live with the fact that a camera is going to bump a lot on a bus. So generally you see bus scenes and they're, they're all kind of tense and bouncy. And what we wanted to do was give it a flow and make that bus the world of Stillwater where you could move in and out of all the different things going on. And Herb, Herb uh, built a dolly that's on the top of that bus. So the camera is moving on a dolly so it just kind of smoothly enters all these lives. And it's really a brilliant thing. So we're, you can see the track up there. <laughs> Designed to be part of the bus, of course. But anyway, we would drive around these long stretches of roads in Sacramento, wasn't it? Was it Sacramento? Yeah, mm -hmm. Sacramento in the Mojave, Mojave Desert. Desert. So we would drive back and forth and do these scenes and it was sweltering. And uh, one of the great shooting stretches of the movie. I did Kate's top in this, don't you, yes, Mom? Yes, I do. That's a Betsy original, the Buckaroo. J.J. <laughs> Cohen plays one of the head roadies there. We love J.J. That was an image that I always had in my mind, the kid yeah. waving to you. Betsy deserved an Oscar for the costuming. It's absolutely brilliant and so very, very accurate. But that was my shirt. Come on, Mom. I think that's the one you wore to school, and the nun sent you home and said, you, you sent your boy to school wearing his underwear. Now, I would like to... Uh, that's true. I would, I would like for you to so sit said, here and watch a... this scene with me, Mom. <laughs> I said, no, back. He said, it's not his underwear. This guy kicked ass. Wasn't he great? I love it. Tell her to stop. <laughs> I know. She freaks me out. <laughs> Billy Crudup actually playing uh, this is his instrument he learned to play guitar like six weeks before with the help of Peter Frampton before we started filming but piano was his main instrument Billy called our, our house recently and said uh, I just want you to know I've still I've still uh, I've stayed with the guitar I play it all the time I'm getting really really good and I want to play you this and oh. I heard I heard this electric guitar in the background going. <laughs> He's great. Simon Kirk from Bad Company is by the pool. We filmed this in the Marilyn Monroe room at the uh, Roosevelt Hotel in Los Angeles. They say the room is haunted. I agree. It was nothing but chaos and mayhem. Bijou Phillips you know, took her top off and freaked out Patrick Fugit, poor guy. 
it distracted him a bit. Yeah, I'm sure it was very traumatizing. I'm sure, yeah, he, sure yeah. he can get over it. It's probably one of his favorite moments in the movie. <laughs> but it was just, you know, I remember John Toll saying, yeah, it's, you know, it's like, uh, it's like a Roman gladiator arena in there. Just throw them all in and see who's bloody and who survives. La Dolce Vita, oh 73 style. God. You don't want to see the outtakes from the stuff that we did with the girls in the, in that room. Feruza, wasn't she really she sick with the terrible toothache? Yeah. Oh my God. Marilyn is still there. Creaking yeah. havoc. Oh, and that was Anna Maria Quintana. Quintana? Anna Maria Quintana. Mother of Pedro. Playing uh, the maid. And then uh, the great script supervisor. And, oh my goodness, and Lisa, also playing a maid there. This is, this is the, this oh. is the Mac Daddy of, of scenes that didn't make it into Almost Famous. This is Kyle Gass of Tenacious D playing uh, the great Quince Allen, who is a, uh, a late night mind-tripping DJ. This was based on a real episode. The guitar and songwriting of Russell Hammond. The vocal stylings of Jeff the Bay, baby. Jeff Bebe. The Bay. Uh Baby. <laughs> Jason capturing the pain <laughs> of the uh, unappreciated <laughs> singer. <laughs> I was running behind uh, on the movie we we had very complicated days and uh, I was running behind on the movie and this is one of the days where someone from uh, the studio came oh, to dear. kind of check in and see how I was doing. Oh dear. And I remember being on the phone saying things like, this is an important document, you know, here, we got to get it right and we're, we're doing this stuff and it's for posterity and it captures the time and they came to visit me during this scene. And shut down the film. Well, thank God no, but... You know, God knows what they thought that, you know, we're, we're smoking dope and the guy's falling asleep. And it's not real dope, of course, but let's just say the scene didn't feel like the next, next best picture nominee. <laughs> um, but it's one of the scenes that we all love, the people that worked on the movie, because it's the whole band of Stillwater and we all love Tenacious D and Kyle is, is just the funniest guy. <laughs> I don't want to hit that delay button there, Quincy. <laughs> and this this happened with Neil Young. The DJ fell asleep and left Neil Young with an open mic on Los Angeles radio. And uh, we shot a couple different versions of the scene. One where the band just gets up and talks for a while, talks and then gets up and leaves after a while, which is what Neil Young did. Do you have to wait till an interview in Arizona to say But the one we used, or almost used until now, is uh, the one where the kid, William Miller, gets to see what's truly brewing beneath the surface between Jason and Billy Crudup's character. And I love John Fedovich as Silent Ed, who's, who's more eloquent with his silence than you know, most people with dialogue. It's my fucking job, and I think you're all geniuses, and I just like to see the folks out And here's Mark Koslick in his acting debut from uh, taking a break from the Red House Saints. Just dealing genius there. The name of the song is Love Thing. 
Your mind is starting to take effect. They've all come to watch you swallow fire. You scream. Soundlessly. <laughs> on the night circus. I think that went quite well. <laughs> I thought that went well. <laughs> yeah, oh, life is good when Quince Allen is back oh, in the movie. Oh, Guys, nice. Kyle Gass is Quince oh, Allen. This is such a fine oh. scene. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> Memories. Oh. Oh, man. Oh. Was this an actual event that took place light. or not? Oh, yes, indeed. That's the Soch 101 test that he didn't show up for for the umpteenth time. I think you got a C in that class, Cameron. Funny. C minus. 27 years can pass, and yet no time can pass. <laughs> Feruza. I know men, and I'll bet you do too. This was great. He respects women, and he likes women. Feruza, for reasons uh, perhaps we will talk about you know, some other time. Feruza ended up getting this scene, wasn't originally uh, scripted to do it. Stepped in and did and the scene. Oh, so well. You know? Really oh, wonderful. Said to my own parents. <laughs> so there Love you that go. line. This is the maid speaking, by the way. <laughs> and that was a tough one because this is the maid speaking, by the way, was good on Francis and Feruza, so you had to choose. And in the end, we went for the horror of Francis as the mother. But uh, Feruza really... I'm glad you did. ...delivered it. Yeah, I'm yeah. glad she ended up right. doing that scene. Mm -hmm. But this, I did, that actually happened. I did have to call your Social 101 class. But teacher. you were a teacher, so you were able to speak teacherese with the other teachers. I, I know, but but you know, three delays, Cameron, three makeups. <laughs> You'd still like me to go to law school, wouldn't of you? Of course, I'm waiting. <laughs> <laughs> Your application is a little yellowed and frayed, but it's there. <laughs> but you're to blame for this. You're to blame because you're the one that. Uh, it was going to be your hobby, sweetheart. You're remember? the one that turned me on to carnal knowledge and Mike Nichols I know. and. Took me to see Medium Cool, an oh. X-rated movie, when I was 12 because you oh. said it was a social document. Oh, I was out of It's my your mind. fault. <laughs> Come on, and you even got to meet Mick Jagger. I did, I did, but it's, it, I, I forgive you, Cameron. I Finally. just wanted, for anybody listening, because we are into the achingly personal aspect of our audio tour, <laughs> we had a press party after the book Conversations with Wilder came out, and Mick Jagger was invited, and he showed up. And my mom actually spent more time talking to Mick Jagger than me that night. What was that like? <laughs> well, he, he's amazing because I've seen his photographs, and then I saw him in person, and he looked so young. He, actually, he's, he's quite good-looking in person. Okay, you see how it happens? Yeah. Rock is yeah. evil until you meet Mick Jagger. Until you meet Mick Jagger. Suddenly he looks great. And, and, wow, Mick and I. <laughs> well, I, I asked him, may I have my picture taken with you? And he's, well, of course, darling. Oh, he put his arm you, around Mick. me and said, thank Cameron, you. you too. Yeah, so he came to me and said, please, please get your mother away from me. <laughs> no, he didn't. No, he didn't. He was great. Now, this is an important scene, and we put... This is where Billy really got the character, I remember, and he felt that Billy is... Billy's got tough standards for himself, and that's one of the reasons he... he gets so deep, works so hard, and makes it look easy. He's, he's a he's, superb actor. He's a superb, superb actor, but he doesn't cut himself a break easily. 
which is part of his process. And I think he finally felt like he was getting to the core of this character in this scene. And it's so great. These are hard lines to do, I think, because it's, uh, it's sort of lofty and poetic what he's trying to say. And it's a musician opening up, but he's also manipulating that kid. So he's honest and dishonest at the same time while being honest to his own love of music. And it is the beginning of the kid truly selling out because the kid chooses belonging and friendship over, yes. over journalism, hoping, of course, to solve all of the problems, belonging and being a good journalist. But this is where the dilemma of the movie hits home. And Billy, I mean, people spend a lot of time in audio commentaries going, oh, this was fabulous, and oh, didn't we nail this, you know, but... He was effing fabulous in that scene. How would you describe oh, your here's, role here's one of the rare what is the chemical you add to the interview sequences. I'm the bass player. <laughs> right. Notice the rain, which will set up the electrocution away, scene later. What would be missing? Stylistically, what chemical? <laughs> the bass. The bass. <laughs> to, to talk about that previous scene. Okay. The, the previous scene with Billy was a combination of a, of a. It was a combination of a conversation I had with Ronnie Van Zant, of Leonard Skinnerd, and Glenn Fry. Glenn Fry from the Eagles told me, "Just make us look cool." And I just, I didn't realize how subtle the manipulation was, and I don't even know if he did. But he, he was one of the coolest guys that I had met at the time. Ronnie Van Zant once, I used to write about Leonard Skinner a lot. Love Ronnie, still do. It is one of the great tragedies that he died early. And Ronnie said to me, not long before he died, that there was a member of his band that he was really, really just feeling a lot of conflict within himself over because he wanted to fire this guy but he had loyalty and couldn't do it. And uh, Ronnie died without having done that. But he opened up to me and told me that, and I wasn't sure if it was as a journalist or a friend, and I never wrote it. But that was kind of the, the subtle line. When you fall in with a band and you're on the inside, you have to, that line changes a lot. Or as James Brooks would write, it's a tricky thing, the line keeps moving. And, uh, but those feelings are still fresh in me. And that's what the movie's about. Meanwhile, we have, we have <laughs> Mark Marin is the promoter. That's Mark Marin? Yeah. Oh, wow. And Noah Taylor, and he really got into it. We shot this at the LA Coliseum. So we put the full fight in. Finally, they had to come up to us. The sun was coming up. We had to quit filming anyway. But people came up to me and said, hey, man, it's getting a little rough, isn't it? Getting a little rough. I love that Noah goes back inside and then decides, nope, more fighting. <laughs> That's Noah. Look at him. Bruce Lee. Yeah, he wanted he wanted to add this kind of martial arts thing to it. So here here was my big uh, here's my big first experience with special effects. Later to blossom into more on Vanilla Sky. Oh. But this this kind of move came from Jocelyn Town, who was the stand-in for Feruza, who was rehearsing this scene, and I saw a playback where she ran into the wall, and I said, oh, my God, that's hilarious. 
So Feruza came in and did it a couple of times with not a lot of padding. Thank you, Feruza. Hope your arm's okay. And the first time we showed the movie, it was the biggest reaction we yes, got. Yes. And I, we used to say to each other, at the very least, people would say later, hey, remember that movie where the girl runs into the wall? <laughs> that was good. So that was our big action sequence. When, uh, when I talk about the movie creating a feeling, this was one of the big yes. sequences that I... It's a lovely scene. We, we worked hard on this. John Toll and I wanted to capture a mood. We knew we had this music, hopefully. Later, we showed the movie to Led Zeppelin, and this was the song where Jimmy Page said he felt this was the, the best usage of their music, of the other stuff, of all the stuff of theirs that we use. Well, they've never let uh, their music be used uh, in films. They let us use a little bit of cashmere in Fast Times, but then nothing after that. And this, this song was one of five that they let us use. This actually happened. Yeah, versions of this happened like crazy. The passing word outside the world outside the tour bus. That was an actual girls running team. Hey. They were all back at the bar with Mark Koslick later, weren't they? <laughs> the entire girls running team. We added a little bit more to Kate here. And I think elsewhere on the DVD, we'll... Let's just say we went to a lot of takes for one particular line that didn't even end up in the movie, but it's here in the, in the extended version. I think Kate's amazing in this she scene. Is. She, she is. just captures that spirit. And that's how Penny Trumbull was. She was she was a guardian of the music as well as a muse. She cared most about the music. And it was a holy thing to her. And that was a big inspiration for the character. There are little bits of it that have its roots in uh, women like B.B. Buell, who, who I met down the line, who were just these larger-than-life characters on the arm of some of the people I was interviewing. But at the very core of the Penny Lane character is Penny Lane, Penny Trumbull. But Cameron, I have a question. Uh, during this period of time, a lot of these uh, girls were, were 16, 17 and uh, one of the most famous ones was 14 what about their parents did did they ever go home or I I didn't understand how that worked I you know I remember talking to some of them about it and a lot of times the parents were young because they were young and the parents sort of John Toll thank you very much look at this flare beautiful Uh, a lot of times the parents got off on it Vicariously. Really? Their daughter's going off with the who or something, you know? That's interesting. We went to go see the Cigaros, great Icelandic band, the other night, and they had seen Almost Famous, and one of them said uh, they really related to the scene where the lead singer got left behind. (laughs) In the bathroom. (laughs) Coming out of the bathroom. I love that touch. (laughs) Here's John Fedovich as Silent Ed doing more with the... the two words of his dialogue <laughs> than you could ever imagine. I think he stole your film. <laughs> <laughs> Francis is oh, really memories. great in this scene. I, I oh. at the time, thought it might be too dramatic, and we reshot it um, to be lighter. 
And Francis, you know, of course, you were right. When you throw the phone down in this scene, it just says everything. And she told me she wanted her son to see this later to get a glimpse of what what uh, parental love really is. And anxiety. And anxiety. This sequence, as we started to run out of money to film the movie, a few scenes got cut in this sequence. So I will talk you through a few little empty spots uh, on our shooting schedule. You can't really tell with the finished movie, but if you read the script, you can see a few of the things that we meant to film in here. One of them was uh, Jeff Beebe's secret Coke problem. And the kid was going to walk into, this is one of my favorite scenes, we never filmed it, the kid walks into a bathroom and he sees Jeff Beebe with the local cocaine dealer who's going to be played by Eric Johnson, good friend of ours from Seattle, great actor and road manager of Pearl Jam and Neil Young and Soundgarden. But he was going to be in there accepting some Coke. You know, Eric Johnson was going to have this Coke spoon out and Beebe was going to be there just about to do some Coke. And the kid walks in to take a clandestine note and they see each other like two dogs on the highway. Both of them are seeing the other doing something they didn't want the other to see. So the kid goes, hi. And BB says, hey. And the guy standing next to Merrick Johnson says, hey. And the kid goes, hi. And then they both go their separate ways and pretend that they didn't see the other. But that scene preceded this one. So Jason, and we put a line in that shows you, shows you what Jason is playing. Jason is playing a guy who's a little high on coke in this scene and is hiding his continuing coke problem. So um, you can you can see that alluded to in this scene. It ended up working without the secret coke problem, but I kind of like that the one line that alludes to it is back in, along with an extra mention of Ian Gillen from Deep Purple. T-shirts are gone. Band happy, all right? <laughs> Can we just skip the vibe and go straight to us laughing about this? I can't tell yeah, you how okay. many dressing rooms like I was in face. where things like this happened. How can you tell? I'm just one of the out-of-focus guys. <laughs> and Jimmy Page actually said to me, you know, he's our friend. He won't write it. Good look at it all right? And what I would end up doing in those situations is I would later come to the band and say, it lets you say I want to write it, and here's why. And they would usually say, go ahead. I like showing Kate Hudson in the background ironing a shirt. Yeah. Just adds yeah. that touch of. Well, it's know? true. It's yeah. what they did. That's right. They also, you know, played that little they gay, serve geisha a role. The geisha role. There's the coke line. Are you doing coke so, again, BB? From the oh yeah, all the time. Yeah, you know, like when I saw this movie uh, the first time, the the first like well, the first part of the movie, like the band seems like it's getting along really well, and I I was impressed at the fact that it, that you do see a real dramatic turn with the band, and that extends all the way through to the to the end of the movie. And uh, uh, this scene, uh, Jason Lee in the scene, I think really does a good job of uh, changing the tone. Of yeah, he's cool. He's, he does a really important thing here. And Mark Koslick with his barbecue line. (laughs) Cannot be underestimated. (laughs) (laughs) I get people off. I connect. (laughs) I get people off. 
See, lead singers always secretly are pissed that they've got to work harder. They think. Love that shirt. And yet, why do I always I always look at that errant hair every time. Look, you want to pretend this isn't going to be a very big band? It is. You call yourself a leader of this band, but your direction allowed this T-shirt when you allowed. We shot this in a cinder block on the floor, I believe, of the L.A. Sports Arena. All right, is it my turn now? Because I think we should, for once, say what we really mean. And it it is patterned after a uh, backstage that Joel Bernstein photographed on a Neil Young tour in 73. Your looks have become a problem. <laughs> Break it up. Everyone out of the room for <laughs> There was a, a scene following this one hey. where as Billy Crudup is leaving with Patrick Fugit, he runs into, Billy runs into his father who has come to the show with a young chickadee who he's engaged to. And the father was going to be played by Neil Young. And again, we ran out of money and weren't able to shoot it. And I think Neil's schedule was shifting anyway. But this is one of the reasons why in the story he's he's interested in what's real. And he wants to talk about the kid's family. Because he's just seen the subtle corruption of his own father. Who didn't want him to play rock. But now has got a babe as a result of his son's success. And he's hanging out with beers backstage. I saw that situation so many times. I think it's not exclusive to rock. Happens with actors, anybody. Parents that weren't originally with you in the beginning come back to the lure of the spotlight. Yes, with with the young fourth wife. Yes. Granny used to call them chickadees. That's yeah. where you got that, camera. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so Billy, you know, Billy is playing all those textures. Whether you see the scene or we were able to film the scene or, scene or not, he really, that's what he's playing. He's playing a guy that just saw the, his own father corrupted. This guy we decided was Brad Pitt's father in 1973. <laughs> Kevin, you're right. He's a, good, he's a good actor, and he later made a movie where he's, he's the star, and he was great. Fever dog, they're singing in that van. I think I'd like to go back home. Take it easy. There's a woman that I'd like to get. This is one of the best cues in the movie, I think. Everybody knows this is nowhere. Clay, production designers, everybody did such a great job on this house. I grew up with that lamp. What I grew a fine up with this line. Thanks. Oh. Yes, it's one of mine. I grew up with that lamp. It's perfect. It's funny. It, yes. The hardest thing to catch in a movie is just the achingly normal. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Oh, oh, it's wonderful. Do I love this oh, guy? Chris. Chris was his name, and he oh. plays Aaron. And we added an extra line for him. He's great. There's uh, Julia, Julia Schuler, of course, who later becomes the waving girl in the tiny dancer scene. Love this kid. This is the kind of scene that they have to literally pull me away from because I'll just shoot it all day long. Just for pure entertainment purposes. I could oh, shoot this face. guy nodding oh, forever. Oh, so could I. And I think I did. So, oh, that's wonderful. Want to see me feed a mouse to my snake? Yes. 
Hey, can I have that bitch and belt? That's Tom Petty's son. I know. (laughs) That's Tom Petty's dad. (laughs) Thank you, brother. (laughs) (laughs) So that happened. That happened to Glenn Hughes from Deep Purple. He gave a guy a belt, I remember, and want to see me feed a mouse to my snake. It was a little bit of a tribute to Chuck Stilson, who I grew up with. Remember Chuck? Chuck and Mick? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Check it out, please. Don't give him this any guy, more acid. Uh, on, this guy standing next to Patrick really was in a bad mood the whole shoot. So we, we cast him as Chris Davis, and we cast him as a guy in a bad mood. Now, John Patrick Amadori, who uh, just played in that little guitar sequence, is one of our spiritual guiding forces on the movie with a tape that he sent us on an audition where he just was talking about music. And uh, we used to watch that tape all the time as inspiration. A young guy already finding his calling in life as a guitarist. It's just an amazing piece of I fun. love that algae on the pool. Thank you. We worked very hard on the algae. <laughs> <laughs> I hope everyone appreciates that algae in the pool. Mom, um, if you spotted it, I spotted you're the first. It. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Come on, drugs! Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> this was uh, we filmed this out in Tarzana, right? In a real house. Billy was great. His girlfriend Mary Louise was on the set that night. Billy is. We were great. all the whole time we were making the movie. We were trying to come up with a title. And I remember, uh, I remember Mary Louise having a title. Wasn't it "Comes a Time"? That night she had a title. That was a pretty good title. Is that she? That no, like she's that. she's uh, in a chair behind the camera watching. But it was a derby. The fans, the uh, the extras were trying to come up with titles for us. The crew was trying to come up with titles. We had a big box. Everybody would put suggested titles in it. Nothing was ever as good to me as Untitled for the longest time, although I'm now used to Almost Famous. But it wanted the movie wanted to be called Untitled, like the fourth Zeppelin album, or a painting that just was shaking off all notions of a title. But um, I do remember my favorite of all the submitted titles, Saving Williams Privates. <laughs> I thought that was good. I really did. Great <laughs> music. I never got to tell Billy Crudup on the set what an outstanding actor he is, and I'm telling him now. There's John Patrick Amadori. And I like it. Greg Allman, uh, when I was on the road with the Allman Brothers, there was a moment where Greg turned a little dark on me. And this, uh, this is a sort of a... This is a tip of the hat to a moment that happened on the road with the Allman Brothers where all of a sudden you think, man, I'm living a dream. A nightmare. I'm living a nightmare. I didn't find out about that till about 20 years later. Well, Greg, to Greg's credit, you know, there was only one night where he kind of began to question this kid that was been hanging around, you know, for weeks. Underage. And, underage. And later, Neil Preston was doing, many years later, just a couple years ago, Neil was photographing Greg Allman. John told Flair, thank you. Was photographing Greg Allman, and Greg Allman said, because Neil Preston was on the road with, uh, with us as 
as well on the Allman Brothers tour. He said, whatever happened to that guy, Cameron? And Neil said, well, he's making movies now. And Greg said, really? <laughs> we really put that kid through the ringer. <laughs> and the funny thing was I had already filmed the movie about being put through the ringer. <laughs> Julia, wonderful moment there, blowing yes. kisses. Um, I made everybody sing Tiny Dancer. Oh, people love this So scene, many Cameron. times on the bus, I think. Noah, towards the end, Noah just said, I can't sing this anymore. <laughs> and wouldn't. So he doesn't quite sing. There he is. There he is. <laughs> He's a little nauseous. <laughs> but uh, I always loved Tiny Dancer. One of my favorite, favorite songs, not only from the era, but of all time, from one of the great, great albums, Mad Men Across the Water. And Elton John... Sent us, sent us the original tracks of it so Aww. we could separate and uh, remix it as we needed to. And we listened one day on the mixing stage. We put up the original tracks of Tiny Dancer and listened to it. And it is so well recorded. It's such a... I mean, it's mostly live. It was ready to happen. You could tell that song. But the amazing thing is right before it starts, Elton John goes... And you don't hear this on the record or anything, but Elton John goes... Adam Dick... What a strange name. And then he begins playing Tiny Dancer. <laughs> so later, later, uh, I heard from Elton John after the movie came out. And he left a phone number and I called him. He was in the studio doing, I guess, the songs from the West Coast album. And I talked to him and he talked about the movie and he was great and liked the way we used Tiny Dancer. And I said, who's Adam Dick? And he said, Oh, God knows. I have no idea. That's all That's all drifted away and gone now. <laughs> but I'll let you know if I figure it out. <laughs> so if anybody knows who Adam Dick is, <laughs> it's the last word spoken before Elton John oh, this is so recorded the song. You are home. Patrick is just in another world here. <laughs> and so tumbleweeds you. blowing through his eyes. And uh, I'm really proud of this moment. We blew off a couple extra scenes to oh, spend more time shooting Tiny Dancer. There's my dress. There's your dress, oh, and that yes. was your exact yes. uh, navy blue. The geography with, of your classroom. Na it was Mom. navy blue with embroidery. Yes, my classroom. Or it could just be hormones. <laughs> I love this girl taking Sorry, notes. Yeah, yeah. Pay yeah. attention to it. Wasn't that great? Rock stars have it kidnapped. It was my son. And they did. <laughs> It was Walter Park's idea to put this cut of the girl yeah. putting, uh, you know, taking notes on Rockstar's yeah. Kidnap My Son, and that was that was sort of what made the scene. Without yes. that little cut, yes. it, w it didn't feel the way it, it uh, ended up feeling. So thank you, Walter. Yes. Now this speech, I, I love this speech. It's based partially on uh, a Keith Richards interview from the day, and also it was... There's a little bit of a comment to the the guys from Seattle that just made a little bit too much of a show about how they didn't want to be popular while simultaneously craving popularity. And I just thought, let's do a speech about a guy that just openly worships popularity and has figured out a theology <laughs> over popularity. And so Jason brings that to life. Kurt Russell was also on the set that day and told me, you know, I haven't acted in a few years but watching these guys in the band do these scenes it makes me want to act again and uh he's in our new movie vanilla sky i took him at his word 
This scene, uh, of course, was not in the original movie. I love this stuff. And that shot in particular is just really evocative time. And, you know, she also looks pretty hot. <laughs> but Jason is just on fire. And Patrick, who echoed the character so much as we were doing the movie, Patrick was starting to get a little weary, I think. And the weariness that naturally happened, because it was a long shoot, just yeah, helped the character. You can see it. He's getting bags under his eyes. <laughs> Some of that's makeup. <laughs> Originally, that song was Sloop John B. by the Beach Boys on that sequence, and, and Nancy went in and did a new cue for, for uh, the DVD release, and it's very great. Thank you, Nancy. Joe Hutching, our editor, feels that is the deepest cigarette inhale ever captured on film. I think he's right. <laughs> yes, you used to write on your hands. I, I remember. Did. I did. It's funny, you know, people are so hilarious with the way they're just always dying to find gaffes in movies. I'm the same way. So many people have come up to me and said, there weren't such a thing as post-its back then. You know that. There weren't such a thing as post-its. And, in fact, it's folded yellow legal tablet pieces of paper That's on right. the on the bathtub That's but right. it looks like post-its it's true post-its didn't exist back then but this scene did happen oh I love that hat okay. I know I love that oh. hat oh how did you come up with that hat this scene um how did wasn't that, was that hat planned for another scene it and we just used to be on Feruza when she did her line from La Dolce Vita right 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 it used to be Sapphire's character's hat and so we figured she passed it along to Penny Lane. And the Ludes. And the Ludes, of course. The hat and the Ludes. I remember a conversation with John Toll about this, and he said, you know, I really have a problem with uh, scenes where a character pees. And I said, you know, I do too. But... Maybe it's just not about her peeing. Maybe it's about the relationship between the two of them. Let's just let's not be cute and have a big peeing sound on there and maybe we'll just you know, add a little something new to the genre of peeing scenes. And in the end I think we sidestepped it a bit. I think the hat helped kind yes. of yes, it did. change it, but yeah. The idea of the scene, of course, and the reason that she is doing that is that he's become one of the girls, but he yes. doesn't want to be that's, one of the girls. No, that's it. He wants to be the guy. Yeah. Your time has come. And ironically, he gets to be the guy. No. <laughs> and this happened to me. Uh, and the song... This was the actual performance from Midnight Special that was on TV at the time. Steely Dan... And uh, they gave us the rights, although I think Donald Fagan said this is the single worst performance ever of Steely Dan. I'm, I'm horrified you guys are using it, but he let us use it anyway, which is great. Thank you, Donald. And I like it that Anna Paquin is wearing 70s pants, no thongs, no yeah. you know, cut way high on the thighs. It's, those were 70s panties. John told did an amazing thing here where he, he lights... Patrick's eyes so that you yeah. can see the girls in their scarves moving around the room, which really is one of those amazing. things that amazing. you sit in the room really. and you watch the dailies of and you say, oh my God, this is great. 
So original, the seduction scene is expressed through the eyes alone. Well, Patrick knew the scene was coming, and I didn't tell him, I didn't tell any of the girls or, or Patrick how I wanted to film it, because I didn't really know. And I think they were all kind of dreading there was going to be some nude romp-a-thon. But what I wanted it to be was a scene from the circus. And in the end, it got staged kind of innocently as a scene from the circus, which is how it felt to me at the time. And at the end of the day, Patrick was like, is that it? Come on, we got to keep shooting this. <laughs> so he, by the end of it, he had gone from dread, you know, because I think it's no secret he was a virgin back then. May still be, for all we know. But uh, he was dreading it so much, and then... Something happened while we were filming it, and I think he just, you know, I'm getting good stuff out here. he came alive. And, uh, but that's the scene, and that's how I always wanted it to be, and Nancy's cue really captured it. Listen, I wanted it to feel a little bit like, again, a Truffaut film. Where you get the feeling, and it's about the feeling of being there. And how old were you, Cameron? Now, this isn't anyway, this is Ben Fontora's. <laughs> um, I was 15. I love the writing on your hand yes. thing. And also, this is so good. Terry Chen plays Ben Fontora's as a guy with no middle gears. He's either angry or happy. Let me try and get you a thousand. See, now he's happy. It's good. Ben himself but does have the, the Metal Gear. Maybe, uh, maybe in the sequel we can do more Ben and get into Crazy. more aspects of Ben Fong Torres. <laughs> Coffee. Me too. Greenville is so boring. You know, any other city in the world. And you. The morning after. The morning after. Oh God. Oh God. What? I've never written anything more than a few pages in my whole life. Don't worry, baby, you will. I gotta find Russell. She, Faruza, just says this next line with such... the laundry? Yeah. I don't think it's the first time she's told a guy to take the laundry out. <laughs> <laughs> what am I? <laughs> uh, tell, and he's not the first right guy now. to have done it, I'm sure. What am I I love what Faruza brought to the scene, and Anna, who took a small part just to kind of be along for the ride. It was great. I love having this extra cut of Jason, who's actually a musician playing in his room his own composition his own composition noah with beth from denver and uh and your original backpack <laughs> that's true this scene was important because it's now he's ready to go home from the circus and this is where this is where the circus has arrested him and is taking him along for the ride. And it sours. And it sours. And this this got cut down a little bit because this was a, this was a section that dragged a bit in the longer versions of the movie. But uh, funny in this new format, we put it back in. This uh, this extra here, I think her name is I forget her name. The Saint Pauli girl maid also appears in Vanilla Sky. Where is she in the She's the girl in the elevator when Tom goes uh, right. in the elevator and says, yeah. It's a nightmare! She almost gets run over. She almost gets run over. And uh, I love this sequence here. Hey, man, we'll uh, do the interview in Cleveland. <laughs> this is when, when Patrick's character gets oh, 
in a bad mood. When you start to know people and they know you enough so that you just allow them to see you in your cranky mood. I love that. And what he what makes him more cranky is that there's such great chemistry between Penny Lane and Russell Hammond. They're a couple. They're clearly a couple. And he has to wake up from the nightmare to see the nightmare again, them together. Look at him. And they're saying they're trying to hypnotize him into being in a good mood. And he just won't go there. That's good, man. This is one of the scenes that got Patrick hired. He came in from LA to LA from Utah. He auditioned with this scene, and I loved his kind of sweet, bad temper. And uh, his stubbornness. Yeah, his stubbornness, and it's just like, read my lips. I am not going to Cleveland. And I love when he gets bitchy there and says, it's all happening. And they're entertained by him. And this look he gives right before we go to the dissolve is tremendous. Yes, wow. all his eyes. Yeah. Patrick, thank you. This was a Herculean task. This is a little tribute to Todd Rundgren there in the chair. Swingo Celebrity Inn was the... Once you got out of L.A., the only other place that gave you the feeling of the Hyatt House was Swingo Celebrity Inn, that lobby, so they find it again. We're going to see my daughter, Cindy oh, that's Weber, right. her husband, and her twin daughters, and Caitlin. There it is. There's my daughter. There, the real, the real Anita Miller there and her family. This was from the great Ziggy Stardust show at Santa Monica Civic, one of the famous boots. Waiting for the man from that show. David Bowie allowed us to have it, and that's cool. We added a little bit more to this sequence. Danny Bramson, who is uh, my partner in all things music and more, um, did such a great job getting all the mo Oh, I love this rap. Noah about the... This, the real truth of being a Stillwater fan. But anyway, in that scene where Kate did her very tasteful nude scene, uh, Danny brought his kid Joshua, my godson, to the set, and his eyes got so big. He was just walking around in this room, and there's Kate in the coat with sort of obviously nothing or nothing much underneath it, and she had a bottle of champagne, and I could just, I looked in little Joshua's eyes, and I saw this kid is going to want to be a director really badly. <laughs> and he just didn't I'd say, Josh, we have to, you know, we have to start filming in this room. You want to maybe leave? No. <laughs> so what happens is uh, there's Jocelyn Town and Jessica, Athena. These are all great little performances. Jessica Campbell there was Kate Standin. Anyway, this Francis filmed her side of the this scene late one night at the end of a very long day, and she had a lot of dialogue. And it's funny when we put the movie together and showed it, she drew cheers for this scene. So uh, a lesson a lesson to hopeful actors is sometimes your biggest moments have to be done at the end of a long, exhausting day, and if your shit's together. You will have done it all. And she brought the game big time. Yes. The most frequently asked questions of me when I did a little press for the video of this film was, did this scene really happen? And uh, with whom was I speaking? Who was I talking to? 
Well, you talked to Glenn Hughes from Deep Purple, who came to our house, like Billy at the end of the movie. You talked to Glenn Fry on the phone. You yes. talked to Greg Allman on the phone. Yes. Basically, when uh, editors or people were calling for phone interviews, you'd often pick up the phone. I know. I and know. sometimes you'd get into it. <laughs> we only had time for one take of this because we had a whole audience in the next room. So we did one take. It's a very long take that actually goes into most of the next song. And Billy? But it's the band rituals that just add yeah. to the flavor of the film, the texture. Your mom kind of freaked me out. Why do I freak people out, Cameron? <laughs> really? You're no bullshit. <laughs> people are used to uh, the sugar-coated pill of uh, well, why come through false courtesy. Why, why crawl through the window when the front door is wide open? Well, let's get Cindy. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> well, come on. Part of the experience of rock is it's got to be a little clandestine, right? <laughs> You gotta own it yourself. But you you were a teacher, you are a teacher, you've always been a teacher. And uh, I think you wondered if rock and drugs and the Sodom Gomorrah of it all was was an ally or a foe of intelligence. That's true. That's true. Brain cells. It was a battle for brain cells. That's and what you always my, used to my say. My students trusted me because they knew I would tell them the truth. And you still do. Thank you. This is Love Comes and Goes one of the songs that Nancy and I wrote for the Stillwater band. And a lot of people wanted more of that, so that's why we're putting that and other reasons we're putting the CD into this. The one thing I... We also have the full Stillwater concert, which is great. The guys worked really hard. And you just, you know, that's... Ivan, that's one of the reasons the four-hour movie became a shorter one, because, uh, you know, the Stillwater concert gets to stand alone and probably should you know but sometimes Cameron when I would come to pick you up and after a concert <laughs> in the 70s this is what it was like you really captured yeah. it thanks Mom. this is what it as I remembered we did this at the Hollywood yeah. Palladium and I love this bow this bow yes. is just so it says so much about music showing the band rituals the band rituals yes that bind Jimmy Fallon's about to come in and kick a little ass yeah, he does a good job. I didn't. I had yeah. no clue that was Jimmy Fallon. At yeah, all. man. He, I love. The, I love the uh, Rolling Stones line in here too. <laughs> oh yes. Jimmy had a big speech, and you'll you'll see it in all of its full Balonian glory here in a moment. Um, but the one thing, you know, I just want to say, we're talking so much about the movie and the personal aspects, and I think I think it's fun to just let it all out. The movie was never meant to feel like the glory of us. Don't you feel that, Mom? I, oh, I mean, yes. We wanted to sort of yes. blow kisses. Well, the as... adjective most frequently ascribed to you when, when fans and people in stores talked about it is your films are so authentic. Thanks. And I say he really does his research. Thanks, Mom. And the, the thing is, oh, by the way, this scene is meant to capture the exact moment when rock changes. Oh, yes. And as it's happening, Penny is dancing alone out on the empty arena floor you know so it's it's all changing right here and visually we did a little bit of a tribute to to Irving Azoff in this Irving who was a was is a great friend one of the great all-time managers Irving rode the big ride 
and still does of rock in the 70s, 80s, 90s. This is how Irving had that beard. And Irving was also and still is a big fan of music. The movie really wants to celebrate fandom, but fans had money to spend, and when money is flying, corporate mentality is not far behind, and this is actually uh, just an attempt to catch that one moment. But the, the one thing I was saying a second ago is, like, I never wanted the movie to feel like the glory of me. It was actually hard to make it because I have a problem with that genre, the glory of me type movie where there's, like, a golden haze over everything, and there's always... There's always an older woman who deflowers the hero. You know what I mean? And the, the hero gets this ornate name that he didn't really have in real life, you know? And it's just, it's, it's a myth-making of the worst kind. And I think we all worked pretty hard to make the movie a personal story that didn't drown in its own... Reverence, self-reverence, you know? So anyway, yeah. that was we the were, attempt. We were watching The 400 Blows a lot. We watched The 400 Blows a lot because that's a movie, obviously, about Truffaut's childhood, but you don't feel... You feel that it was sort of ripped out of his heart a little it, bit. It wasn't self-pitying. Right. This is a very important plot point. I know. Right here. This shows a, a, the big shift in the film and, right. and as, as it really occurred in the 70s, in 73. Yeah. I think this scene was really effective in the theaters too because uh, I think by this point everyone was really attached to the band unit even with yeah. the manager mm -hmm. and uh, I, I felt like the energy in the crowd they kind of felt like they were being betrayed I think along with uh, with the manager I mean that's a good point Ivan Ivan's your fan base Cameron <laughs> <laughs> it's Ivan Corona I love it that he's the band thinks he's auditioning for them but he's auditioning for himself. I think we I think we always wondered what Mick Jagger thought of that that line that Jimmy Fallon said and I hope he I hope he understood that it was a line that was said at the time and is also a tribute to the fact that there are so few survivors from that era and he is he is the dude we love the stones and uh this is my favorite scene in the movie. Yes. And really, One of mine a reason to make the movie. You look forward to shooting a scene like this the whole time. And yes. A lot of times you peek early and you finally get to it and it never lives up to your dreams. But this one did. This one does. We had Scott Martin there playing the Rain song and a bunch of other things. People's Parties. People's Parties, Joni Mitchell, which is a song that we used to audition people for Penny Lane. Though the role was always meant for Kate Hudson. She was the penny lane of destiny. Yes. And I really, the one regret I have about the theatrical version, and there's only one, is that this scene didn't go on longer. So we let it play as long as, well, actually, I could probably still take it for about an hour or so. Uh, but I just love this moment because it's so much what the movie is about. Yes. The spirits that remain after something magical has happened and how you can go back to a place where something amazing occurred and the feeling's still in the air. And she, of all the characters in the movie, understood understood music best. And and that scene shows the edge, cynical, how you know how quick quickly people will sell out. 
Yeah, that shot's a tribute yes. to Annie Leibovitz's uh, great shot of the Stones on their 1972 tour. And this is, in our continuing quest for authenticity on the movie, I called up Glenn Fry of the Eagles because I remembered when I was writing about them in the day that they had these bizarre games of poker. And I said, Glenn, we're here filming, and what was uh, Eagle Poker? And he said... Eagle poker was when we put the, the cards up on our forehead. And um, it's because, you know, you could play that in any emotional or intoxicated state, wherever you are, however you felt, you could play that game. I'm like, Glenn, thank you. We're filming it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and um, thank and you, that's. Glenn, wherever you are. We love Glenn. Glenn was an inspiration for the character of Russell Hammond. He certainly felt like a big brother, and I never had a brother when I met him back then, long before the Eagles were ever huge. He was a great tour guide early on. In fact, his nickname was Teen King back then because he was so connected to what it was to be a teen fan. He was from Detroit, I think. And he's in Jerry Maguire. And he's in Jerry Maguire as an actor. And there's Red Dog, Zach Ward back again. Um... Peter Frampton wanted to act a little bit as well as uh, be a technical consultant, which was a dream con- come true, having him around all the time. And I dig his acting. He got a, he got a rough ride on Sgt. Pepper's. I think he was trying to march to a strange tune that wasn't his own, but just so much fun to work with him as an actor, and also he, he really helped school Stillwater in our rock school sessions that went on every night. And he taught Billy Crudup how to play the guitar, didn't he? He sure did. This is the circus. Everybody's trying not to go home. This, of course, is more of the subtle manipulation between star and journalist. And it's it's sort of like the hidden story that happens between every journalist and their subject. Whenever you read, you know, every magazine now is filled with star and celebrity profiles. The truth is, in between the lines of every one of those articles is a story like this. You know, what happens between those two people? What is the dance between subject yes, and interviewer? Yes. And it's always personal. Yes. And it's always intricate. And this is a great betrayal scene. Yeah. This is when Penny realizes that uh, she's expendable. That her friends are not her friends. We filmed this. I love that cake. We filmed this uh, handheld to give it kind of a don't look back feel. And I love her betrayal. Yes. Well, Shakespeare said, um, a betrayal, thy sting is sharper than a serpent's tooth. He made 16 references to betrayal, and this scene portrays the betrayal and the heartbreak of Penny. This one scene. One of the things, one of the things that, well said, Ma. One of the things I wanted to do was thank all the actors that came up to audition for parts in this movie, because there were many, and Gail Levin knows we spent months casting it. A lot, uh, lot of attempts were made at the character of Penny Lane, and I worked a lot with a lot of actresses. Kate was already cast as the sister, Anita, and ultimately would end up getting the part of Penny Lane for, for a very simple reason, and that was loyalty to the movie. Mm. A lot of people were trying to get her to blow us off for bigger starring roles, and she hung in for a very small part. And she was loyal in a way that reminded me of the girls of that era. There was a lack of shameless, brutal ambition. She wanted to be in our movie, and that was that. 
She wanted to be with the band. She was like Penny Lane. And she became the character. And I can't think of anyone else playing it. So thank you, Kate. We invited her to come by here today. Yeah. Where is she? I have no idea. Kate, come back. We miss you. (laughs) (laughs) She, like so many people in the movie, ended up living out versions of their characters' lives. Patrick, Kate met Chris Robinson of the Black Crows. They got married. Um, She went on tour? She went on tour. (laughs) Penny Lane is still on tour. And uh, Patrick grew up, I think, in the way that William Miller grows up in the making of the, in the telling of the story and in the making of the movie. We saw him recently, and he, his voice was deeper. And didn't he have like twelve girls hanging off yeah. him? Yeah. Did I just imagine he had an entourage? That? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> we also owe a lot to Jan and Bruce Fugit, Patrick's parents, that supported him going off on the road with us, mm-hmm. you know? I felt a kinship to, to them, believe me. This <laughs> was <laughs> a tough scene to get right. Yeah, I love this, I this shot. Chris Harhoff is just a brilliant Steadicam operator, brilliant eye. Just a wonderful guy. He's worked with Spielberg and a bunch of other people. Mm-hmm. The light off of her hair. And there's his dog, Reg. There's his dog, Reg. And uh, Chris scene. really nailed so much of this stuff and... Originally, I wanted this to be a very long, steady camp shot that traveled, traveled through the trees, and they just—they're walking because they just had basic anxiety. But we got to it late in the day, and the light was going to go down, and we weren't going to be able to match, and all those boring technical reasons, we had to stop and do it under this large tree. But it worked. It did work. It's his big dramatic I scene. I wasn't sure we had it, frankly. And I was I was disappointed. In fact, I was distraught. I thought that I didn't film it the way I wanted to film it. I didn't think the actors were as connected emotionally as I wanted them to be. I had worked on the scene so much in rehearsals that it was like on the day I felt we'd peaked. And uh, I think Scott... I probably cried on your shoulder a little bit. <laughs> it was uh, one of the few bad days. It was a bad day. And, uh, but look what you produced. Well, the, this here's, wonderful scene. here's the amazing thing. I thought, uh, I thought we were going to go back and have to reshoot this. And I even called the studio and said, you know, we shot a ton of stuff today, including this dramatic climactic scene, but we're going to have to go back and get it. A little sidebar here. This is sort of a personal thing. I feel that I'm dark and mysterious. Nobody agrees with me. But that, you know, that'll be a lifelong crusade, I'm sure. Anyway, we're back in the editing room, and I'm working on the scene. And I sort of vaguely remember this great moment happening after Kate realizes the betrayal. And we were watching the dailies. We were watching it in the room with Sarkline and... Joe Hutching, and I saw this take. Oh, Let, let's just let it stand, let Cameron, without comment. It's just so pure. What kind of beer? Wow. <laughs> 
About a year later, I showed this movie to Billy Wilder, and I was very nervous about doing that because he's a real hero. Look at her face. And it was at that scene, mm. at that moment, when Billy Wilder made a rare audible comment that resembled a laugh, and he, he basically made this sound. Ha-ha! <laughs> Which was what an music accolade. of the best kind. Right. What an accolade. <laughs> but we had that scene, and uh, all because of that take, I think. And Patrick is very raw and emotional, and just a, a, le a directing lesson there. Cameron named one of his twin sons Billy after Billy Wilder. And William Miller. I used to, th when he was born, I thought he was a William. Now I realize he's a Billy. Mm. <laughs> Definitely a Billy. This is the uh, Gramercy Park, where many a, many a fledgling band coming into New York stayed. Mm. That's, you know, it's funny. Every department got into all the details. We have all the Stillwater albums on vinyl, and that's the Farrington Road album that a fan gives him to sign. The gatefold and matching Derek and the Dominoes. They're going to have a hard time finding a gaff in this film. <laughs> Cameron is the gaff prevent, cop preventer. <laughs> Liz Stauber playing the girlfriend oh. from back home is great. I always miss this in the finished version, although I think it plays better without where the bag breaks. And that, that, that's based on uh, the fact that when I was on the road at that age, I kept stealing the the phone books because I thought, you know, I may never be back in this city. I wanna I wanna have a souvenir from Phoenix. <laughs> and I used to go through the phone books and I would look at all the names and I'd go, all these people and they they live in Phoenix. I'm never gonna meet these people. I have to take a piece of them with me. Oh camera. And my bag broke oh. one day and it was always because of those phone books. And, of course, ashtrays and pens and everything else they used to... I know they ended up in your room. I think I still have a lot of them. Uh, Ian Bailey, playing Jan Wenner there, worked with Jan to get the mannerisms and the perfect smoking mannerisms of Jan. Jan, thank you for letting us use Rolling Stone. And thank you for publishing those articles of mine. Yeah. And uh, Rain Wilson in the background there is playing a, a character based on David Felton, who was one of the, the grand journalistic voices of Rolling Stone at the time. Who's now MTV, right? Now he's working on MTV. Bees on the sign. Max's Kansas City. Clay Griff, there's Elliot Roberts, Neil Young's manager. And a thrilling actor, you gotta say. Hey, Elliot. See, I did put you in the movie. <laughs> Um, Max's Kansas City was pretty faithfully uh, brought back to life by Clay Griffith and we wanted to really capture what Max's was. Max's is a place that you went your first minute in New York City and somebody took me there the first night I ever came to New York. Lou Reed was sitting in the back and I sort of, I just went up to Lou Reed, somebody introduced me and I said, hi Lou, God it's great to meet you. You know, I have an article that has been published on the cover of Rolling Stone. Have you seen the new issue with Jackson Brown on the cover? That's my article. And he kind of looked at me and swatted me away like a fly and <laughs> was walking away going, hey man, Lou Reed, all right, Lou Reed, Lou Reed. 
And, uh, you know, it was, it was part of the lore that Max's Kansas City was always going to offer you some kind of uh, close encounter with a legend. And it's, it, there were these places across the coast. There'd be the Hyatt House Lobby. There'd be Swingos, Max's these little hotbeds where you'd see the same people. By the way, that's a, an actress playing Lisa Robinson, the journalist there talking to Mark Koslick against the wall. Lisa was the other journalist who used to go on the road with Led Zeppelin and we would always do tours together. So, hey, Lisa. The whole movie is filled really with little hellos and love notes to people. I like that glam is a factor at Max's. Like, yeah. This is the glam rock. Because glam is... is is now happening. It's Aladdin cool. scene has come out. Ziggy yeah. Stardust has taken a foothold. Lou, David Bowie, mm-hmm. Iggy. It's all kind of starting to crowd out the meat and potatoes rock. Bolin. Bolin. And Stillwater, being from the Midwest, doesn't know whether to embrace or fear yeah. that stuff, which I really like. Jason, of course, playing the... Uh, lead singer that secretly dreads the fact that he won't be on the cover of Rolling Stone that it'll be Russell. Watch Kate Hudson in the scene. She's just so impressive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Look I at love, that. I love the way that the, the wife's character is just oh, yeah. playing such a, it's just has it so over her and yeah. this uh, yeah. relationship between them is really, really tense. I like it. It's. But watch Kate. It's just wonderful. The, the pain in her eyes. And Noah, knowing that he's got to mm-hmm. sort out the problem. Yeah, terrible. We were playing Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatter's during the film shoot. So Kate's actually acting to that song. It's one of the big things. Scott and I have been doing this since Jerry Maguire. We, we sort of have an emotional DJ session while we're filming. And it does shape what we film, particularly on this movie. Yeah. The actors really seem to enjoy it. It can help them. I also love that you don't hear what's being said. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. Kate kicked ass. I think this is incredible filmmaking, this whole scene. Look at the exchange of the eyes. It's all eyes. The eyebrow. Eyes, eyes, eyes. Look at the way he's looking yeah. at... Uh, <laughs> well, hopefully that's the moment where you start to realize there's something going on yeah. between... Yeah. But you gotta look Leslie. fast to catch yeah. that. And uh, Jeff Beebe. Mm-hmm. Was the exchange Not. between uh, Kate Not. Hudson and him scripted, and you just took the sound out, or was it never intended to be known what he said to her? Um, it was always intended to be glimpsed from a distance. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, we just sort of improv some stuff. Here's Jan Winner. Jan <laughs> used to write to me and say, Don't worry, Mama, I'm taking care of your boy. Thank, <laughs> thank you, Jan. You did take care of my boy, except That's for cool. that one scene when he was 16. <laughs> Jan came to the set that day, and we were outfitting him for the scene and everything. And, and I said, Jan, do you wanna, you wanna shave the beard, you know, you know, so that you're period accurate? And he said, No. <laughs> <laughs> it's 1973, and that is my beard. And I'm like, Okay, action. <laughs> he said that he uh, ran into Bill Clinton at some point after the movie came out, and Bill Clinton said to him. Hey, I enjoyed that movie where you were in the back of the taxi. <laughs> so it's official. It it is a movie about a guy in the back of a taxi, <laughs> and you know, some other scenes surrounding. It. I love that with movie. period uh, inappropriate beard. <laughs> right. 
but he is reading a period-appropriate New York Times. Cameron interviewed my, our doctor, our family doctor, for this scene, so this scene is very accurate. We went to his office, and Cameron sat down and took opious notes. So, Dr. Ray, thank you. <laughs> that is the biggest quaalude bottle in the history of man. <laughs> um, but I remember... I don't know whatever happened to quaaludes, but I remember even at the time those bottles were used as decorative items. <laughs> I love All these boots. All oh, those boots. Oh, <laughs> Cameron, who Betsy discovered it? Is that ass. Betsy? That's Betsy. Oh, Betsy, thank you. And the kind of Japanese-style oh. dress, which is oh, yes. which is great. I, of course, am responsible for uh, William Miller's wardrobe. Cameron, you wore <laughs> Cameron, you wore grunge before the Seattle scene. Believe me, it's, you it's still so do. Sad but true. Um, that scene. Oh man, oh. what was the name of this band? I don't. They were from a high school in San Diego. Yeah, they were one. This really, was Mary. This Mary. Was Mary, Mary was the woman. Yeah. This was filmed. There's my mom. There's Alice. There's Pink my hat. <laughs> my journalism teacher, Mr. Wilson, is also on that stage. There's Pedro. Okay. This this scene is, uh, as a few people have noticed, is a tribute to the apartment. Joe Hutching, our editor, would be would be sad if I didn't notice that this extra in the background really needs to learn to blend into a scene better. I'm sorry. I hate to hurt your feelings, but Joe, really, who's a very calm, zen guy most of the time, is still furious yes. about the performance of that extra. What is she trying to do? Upstage Francis McDormand? You know. <laughs> said, Joe, should we go to San Diego and confront the extra? He said, Joe, I was in yeah. labor. Joe, I was in labor 17 hours. You owe me. No, it's not you. No? We're talking about the girl oh. right over oh, Francis's shoulder. Oh, I thought you she was talking she, about me. She, she, she sort of. Uh, yeah, she stole the There's scene. Daniel Wilson, second from the end on the left, as you're watching this, my old journalism teacher, who remembered an argument we had that I had forgotten. <laughs> so we reconciled, and I didn't really know why. <laughs> and the but there's that extra. You see, she's just like, uh, yes! Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So don't want to oh. point any fingers. I know, you know, whatever. I think she was friends with one of the ADs or something because I kept saying, please move that, that extra <laughs> out of the way. But by the time we were filming, she was back. So um, whatever, just a little comment for any future extra. Blend, baby. Please. Blend. Please. <laughs> no offense, though. Back to me. We'll give you another chance but, sometime. Uh, oh, God, why am I so nervous? You'll never I don't know Kate if I'd Hudson, be able to get Joe Hutchinson to Hudson, edit the... I love you. No. Kate Hudson deserved an Academy Award. Go where... That's For very her kind performance of you to say. In this film. She was... Uh, hmm. What a memorable performance. Film I love students. the noise she makes after the kiss. Mm. And then she falls. <laughs> Emily. Okay, sweetheart. Sit up, sit up, sit up, we filmed sit up, a little bit extra Good girl. Good girl. with the actor here playing the doctor, the wonderful actor from what New York who oh. moved his schedule around to come in and do this. Oh, and I'm so I, glad I he and did. The, and the nurse, too. They just did a great job they making did. this real. Yeah. They did. Emily, wake, wake up. But it is a tribute to Frank Kubelik in the apartment, and I always loved the fact, and I saw situations like this, where a girl that I was a little bit infatuated with, who was infatuated with somebody I was writing about, was mistreated or or um, was suffering for some reason or another. And I just, 
Sometimes if you're the person that's there, even though they're suffering over somebody else, if, if they share the suffering with you, that, that brings you closer together. It's a bonding. Yeah, and that was, Billy caught that really well. The brotherhood of suffering. In the apartment, where Jack Lemmon takes that punch Yes. from, from Frank Kublik's brother, brother yeah. mm-hmm. who thinks that he's responsible for an abortion or something. Yeah. And Jack Lemmon is just happy to take that punch yes. because it meant he mattered enough to be a threat. So cool. Even wrongly. So... Patrick himself was exhausted at this point in the shoot. And I I said to him while we were filming, Patrick, we're all going to be out of your life soon, and we're not really your friends. <laughs> and the poor guy nearly cried. And when I said cut, I went and told him that was a cheap ploy that I learned about from other directors. <laughs> it wasn't really true. And, uh, and he was a bit shell-shocked. And... Uh, I think, you know, it was a gift that he took the ride personally and took it so deeply to heart, and he was very exhausted that day. This is the longer version of the scene in Central Park. I always wanted to film in Central Park by this by this lake, the Catcher in the Rye, J.D. Salinger yeah. Lake, Where Do the Ducks Go? And uh, so we filmed there, and this was the last day. This was the last shot mm-hmm. that we filmed. And Kate... Kate's parents, Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn, were on the set, and there were people from, you know, just passersby and tourists standing around. Paparazzi. And it was paparazzi, and it was really emotional because this speech actually is based a little bit on B.B. Buell and uh, something B.B. Buell said about how she got brought into the world of rock. And I just loved the idea that it was a Coke with lemon that was given to Penny Lane backstage by the Rolling Stones, and she never went home. She never went home. This is a longer version of the airplane scene. So accurate that it's the day after that she almost OD'd, and she's wearing very little makeup, and her eyes show the the health damage the next day. So accurate. Yeah. Lady Goodman is actually a real name. It was a friend of my friend Debbie Gold's. And Lady Goodman lives in Philadelphia. She lent hey, me her name. <laughs> Thanks, lady. I loved that joke. Never never quite knew if it worked that well, but I love having it back in. We didn't get enough time to shoot the actual stewardess, who was a nice, nice actress and did a good job. We only had enough time to shoot Kate. And, uh, and this is the scene. We got use of a plane through that window, and we built, thanks to the crew, an an ingenious um, building job. We built a little claw that went out, and we're able to get some distance to film Patrick running alongside this plane. And this was one of the other shots that made me want to make the movie, the fact that he's going to run through her fingers. Yeah. And... uh, I just love the way Patrick is so animated and he just jumping around. He's lost all attempt to be cool. He just loves her. Jumping up and down. Jumping up and down. Roger Ebert called this the best film of the year and he was right. (laughs) (laughs) And you wonder why I still hang out with my mom. (laughs) Come on. I met Roger Ebert at the awards and I hugged him and whispered in his ears, thank you, you've meant so much to my son's career because he believed in Say Anything early on, years ago, when no one else did. He and Gene Siskel really 
They did. Champion to say anything and kept the movie going. So thank nice. you, thank you, thank you, Roger <laughs> Ebert. I'm very happy with the thank yous we're able to send out while we're doing this yes. because you often don't get a chance That's right. when you see the people in you know a premiere situation or something like that. You you try and kind of shout in their ear, thank you. But it's great to have this opportunity to do it. This was uh, this was the this was the genius of John Toll, one of the true great cinematographers. John Toll said, "Let's do a scene," and it's also one of the gifts that we didn't have, like you know, some huge superstar actors in the scene who would demand not to be subjected to what I'm about to tell you. But John Toll and I had this idea to put this whole compartment on a gimbal. So instead of doing what a lot of people do in plane crash type scenes, where they shake the camera, oh. we shook the actors. Oh. <laughs> and we shook them for days oh, on I didn't end. Know that. Violently. Oh. Violently. So oh. this is inside a sound studio. Oh my God, look and, at Jimmy uh, Fallon. And it's He's being. He's gonna vomit. It's being. At one point, Billy, right after this take, I think, Billy was crashed into the side. Um, because the gimbal went out of control just a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> but we are yeah, violently man. shaking this around, and that's, that's, that's there's no tricks here. No. They are, that's why uh, it's so authentic. They are riding a bronking horse. <laughs> the pilot. And how many takes, brutalized. Cameron? How many takes? <laughs> um, a few. A few. <laughs> oh, look at they The pilot look. really got... Because he had to get up and walk around. He had around. to get up and walk, and he oh. got thrown around a lot. Oh, man. Um, but this sequence, it's funny. This sequence was in my head for many of the early, early drafts of the movie. I always wanted it to be a rock movie where the cliches almost happen but are averted. One of the big cliches, besides an OD, which almost happens, is uh, the obligatory plane crash that almost happens. So... The uh, This was in all the drafts, and years went by, and I always thought, you know, this, this idea feels like I could see this in another movie if I don't make this movie quickly. It just felt like one of those ideas that could get in the wind. And uh, so miraculously, I never saw anything approaching this, a, a nearly averted plane crash where people tell truths right before the plane almost crashes. I thought I really had gotten away with this until the last episode of Seinfeld aired. Yes. Oh. And I watched yes. this just as we were getting ready, I think, yes. to shoot, or we already had oh, shot. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And there was a scene like it. Yes. And I, at that point, had the, had the option to cut it, do it differently, or, uh, or just continue on with the exact way that we were always going to do it, which I chose to do. But... I talked to a friend of mine who was familiar with the story and everything, and I called him after the Seinfeld episode, which, you know, half of three-quarters of America watched. Oh, yes. I called, I talked to my friend, and I go like, uh, so what would you think of the uh, Seinfeld episode? Like, yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah, it was good. It was good. It was good. Did you see the plane crash near plane crash scene? And they were like, yes, what are you going to do? And it was one of those things where you walk a tightrope as a writer and you just decide, okay, well... Especially when you thought of it first. Who knows who thought of it first, but I 
am so glad that we didn't get scared off of it because the two scenes are very different and and I love John Fedovich in this yeah, moment. Amazing actor. Yeah. yeah. That was an insane job. I'm curious. I, I always want to ask you: did, did anything even similar to this happen to you uh, in your career? Yes, no? it, it happened twice. Um, it happened twice. Once in 1973 on a plane on a Who tour, where I was with Neil Preston, and uh, we were actually the Who was not in the plane. It was the the T-shirt concession guy, <laughs> who was the first T-shirt concession guy I'd ever met. It was basically a guy. Who barely knew how to fly with oh. a with a cardboard box full of T-shirts? Oh, and me and Neil, and uh, <laughs> oh, I'm glad so I the plane know. almost went down. Oh my God! By the way, I'm I just have to savor Jason Lee knocking the wall with mm -hmm. his fist. It's the greatest moment. It is. Um, and the other time it was on the road with my uh, go Jason. Yeah. Boom. The other time was with uh, my wife's band Heart. And the plane almost went down over wow. Tupelo, Ooh. and almost all of that dialogue happened in in either exact ways or. And you wondered why no. I was worried at home, dropping <laughs> phones, Cameron, and calling. <laughs> I knew we were in trouble when, when Howard Lease, who was was the guitar player in Heart, who who collected like, you know, stewardess pins and everything, and was a the consummate flyer. I knew we were in trouble when Howard Lease said we shouldn't be here. It was like, oh shit. Um, so that's what it felt like. I also love this moment between Billy and the kid. And you Patrick's also, wave is just, uh, uh, I love it so much. And you also interviewed a survivor of the Leonard Skinner crash. You well, those me. guys were, I was very As to what happened them. in those last moments. Yeah. How many survived? Well, the, the, the uh, one who was in the swamp and... The ones, the the ones that died were the ones I was pretty much closest to. It was a rough time. But Alan and Gary, who were in that band, told uh, Al Cooper and I one night the whole story of the plane crash, and it was chilling. And they knew they were going down, and they had the time, the opportunity, and the need to tell each other their secrets before the plane crashed. In actuality. In actuality. Wow. Ooh. Anyway, I always used to get mistaken for a messenger. <laughs> uh, yeah. So this was a delivery scene about boy. That. Didn't they think you were delivery boy? This this scene, I love this scene. This should have been in the theatrical version. Didn't they to say you were a delivery boy? Go around the back. <laughs> that and messenger. There's Ben. Love that shirt. Oh baby. Love that stance. And the stance. Yeah. Oh, baby, it's Hunter Thompson's uh, Aspen Sheriff poster in the background. There's the fact checker. You never heard from the fact checker? The real fact checker? Yeah, the real one. No, I didn't. It's funny, I heard from a lot of people after the movie, and particularly on our website. Um, a lot of the girls from that era wrote in, and girls that had supposed, so much supposed casual sex. What's so funny is that they all remembered everything. And it was never that casual, even in the era of casual sex, which became a little bit of a theme in Vanilla Sky, the new movie. Is anything meaningful that happens between people ever that casual? Cameron Diaz conversation. Yeah. It's so 
Your body makes a promise. I thought that was such a poetic line. It's so true. Thanks, Ma. We'll just seg right into the Vanilla Sky DVD. Yeah, we yeah. can start that now. <laughs> These are Polaroids that we took uh, during the making of the movie that we sort of wanted to reminisce with. And we did this on a soundstage oh, in Hollywood. Did you allow the actors to take the photography themselves, or did you? Some of them, yeah. Some of them. A lot of it was Neil. And a lot of it was Neil Preston. They want you to get drunk. I'm feeling like you belong. Philip Hoffman, this scene is funny. Uh, this scene changed a lot. Originally, it was a scene where Lester was storming through the apartment, just shouting advice to this guy like a, like a warrior king. And through rehearsals and discussion with Phil Hoffman, who is a brilliant actor, and uh, and really did only have a few bursts of time to do this part. Through conversations and rehearsals, we decided to make this scene about the two, yeah. the only two guys in the world still up. Mm. And they're talking with each other. Yeah. And, uh, and this guy is, and this was Phil Hoffman's note, Lester was lonely. Yes. And it's funny that he, he, channeled Lester so carefully. It's funny that he said that and and kind of <laughs> kind of amazing because I knew Lester but I had forgotten the loneliness and I had remembered him larger than life maybe without some of that loneliness but it was Phil Hoffman that said I want to play that loneliness because he'd studied Lester and that's how we came across this scene which I'm really proud of. It's a very moving scene. I love the line, call me, I stay up late, and another, another scene, call me, I stay up late. Yeah. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman's one actor that's long overdue for an Oscar, because he's always put <laughs> yeah. uh, good work for it. I, like I don't, you know, I don't think he does it for that, which is probably why he'll win. Hmm. Someday. Soon, I hope. <laughs> so I love it, that now, why oh, didn't we put that in the, in the theatrical no, version, where she it. rips the... You? Well, you know, you lose your perspective. Oh. But, you know, Mom, Almost Famous is an ongoing experience. <laughs> and I hope you meet us here in another six months for a, another version of the movie. I'm still waiting for the sequel to the sequel. What, what would that be called? A trequel? <laughs> a trequel. A sequel to the sequel. So you want to jump ahead to volume three. Yeah. Interesting. I sound like a dick. I love that Maybe we just don't see ourselves the way we no really are. No one has are. ever heard Billy say you are a dick. I know, I know. <laughs> it's hidden in there. It's so you hidden. You acid screaming, I'm a golden god from a fan's rooftop. They used him to fuck us. I'm a golden god came from Robert Plant, who shouted that out to Sunset Boulevard when I was writing about them. And when we showed the movie to Led Zeppelin, and Billy serious. said, I never no, said I was a golden serious. god. I heard Robert Plant's voice in the darkened theater go, I did! <laughs> <laughs> You had the right idea all along. Silent Ed, again, doing more. Eloquent in his silence. Ivan, you got to check this out. I don't think you've seen this. This is Jimmy Fallon's mystique rap. Which we're very happy to have back in the movie. Was it in the four-hour-long original cut? Yes. I haven't talked to Russell yet. Oh, you saw that version? Yeah, I saw it. Then you've seen this. This is one phone call. This is, uh, is a lesson this is in war, mystique. If you'd have met me earlier, he would have never been around. He'll and live. As they say, mystique is 80%. Do 
of your feelings about any particular part of pop culture. Happiness. Realizing your dreams. Money. Cool. Meaning the Beatles. Let's put all of it in the pot. There's another take of that where Jimmy goes, meeting the actual Beatles. Not giving too much away. Jimmy. I'm surprised he didn't hang on to that look after the film. Yeah. Before I go, let me give you a lesson in mystique. You can only have one. Which one do you want? Which one are you going to choose? I also love as Jeff Beebe in a Jeff Beebe t-shirt. <laughs> Another Robert Plant reference? Yeah. It's phenomenal, William, to be quite honest with you. It's sophisticated. It's intelligent. Now, we it's only back. Had a couple of graphs. Jeff Beebe's mother already now let's watch Ben just bail. <laughs> yeah. William Miller. This was an interesting <laughs> thing. Ben is so bail. warm and yes. mentoring. <laughs> as soon as he finds out the story is fake, <laughs> or hears that the story could be fake, he bails so fast. <laughs> which Ben in real life. Now, wait a second. You know, Denied had a l l little more of a caring transition. No? See you later. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Chris, he has a millisecond of regret. <laughs> uh, then no. it's over. <laughs> you know what Grandpa used to say, Cameron? If what? I see you, I don't know you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When somebody turns. Now, explain that this really happened. Okay, this is the one thing the I have to say. This is one thing where I would read in reviews or people would say, you know, I like the movie, but this scene was so fake where the sister discovers the brother up. in the airport. It's just too much of a coincidence. Well, it happened. It happened. It happened at the end really of the did. Greg Allman, uh, the Allman Brothers story. And uh, it's a whole other, whole other story I could tell someday, but I was really... You know, I, I basically was a zombie, and I was sitting in the San Francisco airport trying to figure out what to do about this Allman Brothers piece for Rolling Stone that had blown up in, uh, in pieces right in front of me, and I didn't know what to do. And my sister came by in an outfit just like this. She worked for Western Airlines. PSA. This is a PSA California outfit. She worked for Western. And she walked by and she said, Cameron? And I was completely trashed, and she said, you, you look terrible, but that's good. I've been telling you, you have to live your life and get out from, from, from home, from, from mom. I think, I think from... yeah, I think she said get out from your mom. I do believe she said that. And, uh, and what happened was she did what uh, Anita does in this movie. She made sure I got home and took care of me. And it was an important event. And if it hadn't happened, I probably wouldn't have written it. But it did happen, so I wanted to pay tribute to that moment. So, uh... Zoe's amazing. I know. I love the noises they make here. Yeah. Alice, was it hard for you to watch uh, this uh, reunion uh, uh, scene? Yes, yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to bring up. <laughs> I forgive you. I came up with that on the spot. I, I forgive apologize. you. I didn't apologize. We only did it for one take on each side, and I'm so glad we did. I think Cindy wanted a more traditional mom. <laughs> but, but I think and she's used to me now. And you're used to her. Right. And uh, she's a wonderful mother. Yes, she is. And acknowledges the same about you. Thank you. 
Beautiful one shot. of my favorite shots. Yes. Now you're gonna you're gonna watch Noah Taylor just kind of give her a friendly uh, with his fist, touch her body. It's just a little intimate thing that people do when they've been intimate in the past and they're no longer. But it's still watch it. See, it's very subtle. He just yeah. touches her. Well, they're they're on the circus ride, you know. They've seen each other in many different situations. Yes. This is a scene. This is probably. People have asked, what's, what's the favorite thing that you're going to put back in for the longer version? And it would probably be this. This is the goodbye between B.B. and Russell Hammond. No, maybe not. I could work on it, though. Jason had to get on a plane and go to Toronto for the premiere of Mumford, so we, we, uh, we were up against it on time, I remember. I just can't picture you with last But we did come up with this idea. I thought... Wouldn't it be great if when they try and hug, they're two guys who are not huggers, yeah. but they try and hug and it's a messy hug and they knock over some shit in a cup and, you know, they don't make it easy for themselves to be emotional with each other. And I love it. Love the way they did it and I love what Billy does. And, uh... It's why you became a director, sweetie. <laughs> These well, are the moments. If you're lucky you get actors that yeah. bring it to life like that. Because without the actors, it's just words on a page. Billy has this wonderful melancholy mood at the beginning of the scene. And it was one of the few times we played music that wasn't from the era. We were playing Pearl Jam's Nothing Man. Mm -hmm. And he's listening to, to Nothing Man at the beginning of this sequence. And it really struck a chord in him. William? Well, what do you care? And we all know what you did to him. And everybody knows. This is a important exchange that I'm glad is back in, talking about the way they'll remember this years later. If something tells me 20 years from now, we'll remember her. Not much else. What is that guy in the pith helmet doing back there? I, st I, I can't take my eyes off him. Yeah. <laughs> And I don't know why he's wearing a pith helmet. No one questioned it at the time. <laughs> it was completely normal. <laughs> they don't even know what it is to be a fan. This is his moment of realization. Yeah. A piece of music or some band so much that it hurts. Go, Feruza. Hello, Penny? It's Russell. Don't hang up. I can't really talk right now. Clay Griffith with that great blue wall in the background. That's what a production designer will give you. Good to do a shout-out uh, to a lot of the people that are on the fringes of the movie playing roadies and people that were with us for months, and they may not get a lot of lines, but they had a lot to do with the environment. Ray Porter, who played one of the roadies, J.J. Cohen... Gary, what was Gary's Douglas last name? Cone. Gary Douglas Cone. Gary Douglas Cone. Gary. Gary played one of the roadies. Great. Cameron videotaped our living room, where I've lived for 30 years. And uh, the Clay Griffith uh, uh, reproduced it faithfully. One piece of furniture that they haven't made in 30 years, he found it in some rare antique shop. So I'm really impressed with the authenticity in this film. Thanks, Mom. The movie scripted uh, had a different ending 
which uh, Francis is playing a uh, Neil Young song on the way home for the family. And the scene just didn't quite come out right. Part of, part of it was the way I filmed it. There was a Mrs. Butterworth's bottle that just, for some reason, overtook every shot. It looked like the movie was all about getting to the point where the family could love Mrs. Butterworth's. <laughs> so we cut it, and in the end, in the end it's, we have pieces of it in there, as you'll see a little later. But, you know, William, the movie, theatrical version especially, is, the, is through William's eyes. But along the way, I kept working on the ending, and right before we started filming, I came up with this idea that Russell and Elaine Miller would come together. And yeah. Francis does a four-stage reaction at the door, which is fun to count. But I wanted to bring these kind of twin pillars of influence on the, on the young William Miller. I wanted to bring them together. And uh, it's really great to watch Francis and Billy, who, who did who've worked together in plays and know each other well, just just so beautifully working together. And you can kind of, and Zoe Deschanel, of course, striking a pose that just, I don't know why it's so funny, but it is. It's a huge laugh. Yeah. But you got to just watch Francis and Billy here because these are two actors that, they're, they're like, um, they're like athletes that perform best working off each other. And uh, it's a sight to see. It's a, it was a long road getting these actors in the parts that they're in. For some reason, I thought after Jerry Maguire, it'd be easy to get uh, exactly who you wanted. But the, uh, the cast changed. The, the chemistry of the cast changed. And uh, it was very fortuitous that these people ended up in these parts because... Yeah. These are the ones. You were lucky. These are the ones. You were lucky, Cameron. Enormously lucky. Yes. No, no, I agree. Somebody so was much, uh, so smiling down on us. You bet. Mm-hmm. Look, look at these looks between them. Yeah. There's hope for you yet. Russell. Russell. <laughs> <laughs> and here's Billy giving you, again, with no words. Yes. The grace that He's the character a fine, needed. Fine actor. And there's El Cordobez. That's my poster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Enough of enough of this melancholy. <laughs> That's my poster, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> what are you doing with my poster, Cameron? <laughs> uh, before the movie's over, you know, I think it's really important to thank and mention Larry Kasdan, who, in the days after Jerry oh, yes. Maguire, I spoke to Larry and I told him about another project I was thinking of doing, and he said, you know, when are you going to do that movie you've always been talking about? Larry, I met for the first time around the time of Say Anything. He almost directed Say Anything, supported me to direct it myself. And we talked about Lester Bangs in this movie on that day back in 1988. And when I talked to Larry years later, he said, why are you doing that movie you always used to talk about? You know, if you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. And it was on that day that I put down what I was working on and resurrected this project. And that's why Larry's thanked at the end of the movie. And, and I thank you, too, uh, because I tried to get Cameron to do this for 10 long years, but who listens to moms? And uh, he called me one day and said, I just talked to Larry Kasdan, and I told him I was going to do the film. So thank you, Larry. And I met you at a party, and I thanked you in person. <laughs> <laughs> Same night you met Mick Jagger, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And Artie Shaw. Larry and Meg, his wife, Meg Kasdan, were real supporters of the project, as was their son John Kasdan that wrote me a letter 
uh, very early on saying the same thing. And these are people that really yeah. uh, were sort of, you know, crusaders to get me to do it. Right. And, and also, you know, Andy and Scott who are here, you know, the, yes. this was not an easy movie to make. So to, to uh, my friends and close Faithful family, Scott and Andy. You know, a lot of people <laughs> had to hear me going, why oh. am I making a movie about oh, God, me? Yes. Oh, oh, my God. God. Yes. Oh, yes. Take me home, Mr. Oh. Wizard. Oh, ah. yeah. Mr. Wizard. <laughs> um, you know, you guys put up with a lot of uh, small and large freakouts. And uh, I'm just so happy I did this movie. Everything. And I'm so happy to be seeing it in this form. So, gracias, señores y señoras. Joe and, Hutching. And thank you. You kept my son sane. <laughs> uh, Joe Hutching put this together. That's a young man from the Starlight Project who we put in. We finally got a nice place for him. Um, but the, and there's a piece of the Mrs. Butterworth scene. And there As she you is. can see, there's Mrs. Butterworth. <laughs> kind of like a holy icon. Yeah. I don't know why. It's like uh, that Zeppelin thing, the object. The object. That's right. It's the obelisk. Um... <laughs> You know, also, Eric Stoltz has been in every one of the movies in one way or another. Yeah. We uh, we were going to film Eric Stoltz on a marquee at the end of this movie. You know, as his band, The Crazy World of Eric, Eric Stoltz. Stoltz, was coming to Cleveland. Again, we ran out of money. But he does appear cryptically at some point in Untitled Night. I say to anybody out there interested, find Eric. He's in there. The streak <laughs> is alive. <laughs> I was always proud also that we kept so long in black here at the end of the movie we stayed in darkness with no titles it's great because we had to let tangerine play out <laughs> it's a great <laughs> but we song. didn't have any more film so it's kind of like giving you a moment just to listen to music at the end and then we play feel flows with all the polaroids and uh you know the movie just keeps giving gifts to all of us, I think, people that love music. And Jerry Ziesmer. Yeah, well, I'm about to Thank talk you, about Jerry Ziesmer. Jerry and Suzanne Ziesmer, who... Oh, yes. This is their uh, their final movie as assistant director and, and co-assistant director, Jerry and Suzanne. Are... And thank you, Jerry, for letting me get up on the stage and have <laughs> one half second in this film. Okay, thanks, Mom. <laughs> Not that you're keeping score. But Jerry and Suzanne kept everything going. It was a tough movie to kind of harness and keep on the course but you guys did it thank you also want to mention lisa stewart and ian bryce who produced the movie jeff wexler and don Sufel, who were the great kings of production sound doug hemphill and rick klein and paul massey who we love to mix the movies in post-production and just a, a little side note that's not so little to me is the great presence and almost famous is a man who's not there and it's the empty chair at the dining room table who represents the effect of my dad, whose memory really is palpable for all of us in my family, and his presence I wanted to be felt and almost famous too. Not a day goes by, we don't miss James Gross, so I dedicate this untitled cut of the movie to him, my dad, Jim Crow. Feel Flow is always meant to be featured in the movie. It's such a great Beach Boy song. And it just had the feeling of like grace and kind of intoxicating good vibes and I wanted to end the movie ultimately with this if we could but the point is like a lot of odd unexpected gifts came about and as a result of the movie and one of them was Brian Wilson who 
He's the genius of the Beach Boys, and the first album you see in the tartan bag of records underneath the kid's bed in this movie, you know, Pet Sounds, Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson was taken by his band to go see Almost Famous in the theater. He sat through it, and at the end he heard this song, which is sung by his late brother Carl. Afterwards, when the lights came up, the guys in his band that took him to see the movie said, what you think? And he said, uh, I really loved it. And uh, listening to Feel Flows, I love that song. I really miss my brother Carl. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, I'm a huge Carl Wilson, Brian Wilson fan. And it's just one of the great little byproducts of doing a movie that really was a labor of love for us that you can actually touch one of the uh, people who touched you. So that was a cool thing. I think that you have to hail Michael Angarano and his parents also. Yeah, Michael Angarano, who Great played actor. young William. Fantastic. Anna Maria Quintana, script supervisor, did so much. Post-production, Ofi Jimenez, Heather Goodwin, Mark Saar, Joe, the editorial people. Mike Thomas, the operator, camera operator, amazing. did an amazing job. I hear that the Pope is going to anoint Joe Hutzing as a next saint. <laughs> <laughs> and I agree. Yes. <laughs> well, particularly for Vanilla Sky, but Joe that's Hutzing another story. Joe is the editor. He is an actor's best friend. He's yeah. an actor's best friend and so much fun to work with. And saint Joe. <laughs> I just think especially now it's a great time for this movie to come out in this form because for anyone that wanted more so-called grit or that kind of like corrosive anger that's present in a lot of the best rock for anyone that wants that there are those movies and there are movies featuring that slant that I love but I'm glad we made this one because this one sort of fills in a, a few colors that I hadn't seen enough of and it is how it felt and in the end you can only tell the story that you can tell and this was what it felt like to me to be 15 in 1973 and taken in to this world. I feel like no matter what kind of movie I wanted to make, it was going to end up being this because this was what it looked like through my fans' eyes. So, uh... You didn't expect the Oscar and how wonderful that you got it because you surely earned it. I agree. I, I got, I got those. I, I stay up late. Did I that take, really happen? I get your two o'clock in the morning calls. <laughs> well, I'm as glad I got to as stand up. a therapist, up I'm your mom and your shrink. And I got to stand up at a podium and uh, inhale you a little bit. So thanks, mom. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>